Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life, works, and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michael Swain. My name is Michael Swain, <laughs> and I am joined, as always, by Alex Schmidt. And I'm Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Swain. See, I went low Someone's now. Someone's got to end the cycle. Yeah. Cutting us off. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> Hey, I'm so excited hey. to be doing this. Yeah, Bagambo. And yeah, we have quite a book. Uh, this this particular episode it is called Bagambo Snuffbox. It was published in August of 1999. Ooh, what a recent year. The last century. <laughs> I know. <laughs> a century ago. A millennium ago. Mm-hmm. Ah, oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Back when computers worked, <laughs> you know? This is uh, a book that is a collection of short stories by Kurt Vonnegut, along with a couple of other things. And I think we can get into how it came into being with a segment called Franken-Time. How did it begin? Going back to the beginning. Gonna see how things begin. (laughs) 1,000 years ago. 1,000 years ago, Kurt Vonnegut (laughs) carved into a stone tablet these stories. And that's how it yeah. came together. Next segment. Yeah, great segment. It was good. <laughs> this is uh, we've done this segment a couple of times with various books where there's it's just curious, like, how did this book even come into being? Because this book is a lot of previously uncollected short stories from early in Vonnegut's career being published very, very late in Vonnegut's career. Yeah. Oh man, crazy. How is that possible, Alex? <laughs> is it some kind of Tupac situation? <laughs> No, that's. I wish it was. Yeah. That would be great. I'd uh, like a like just legend wise Coachella. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> just walking around the stage like electronics are bad. If Vonnegut appeared with Lord, <laughs> that would really make my day. <laughs> there's not really Vonnegut news this week, but uh-huh. the new Taylor Swift album. There's a track in the middle of it called "So It Goes." Ah. And there's also like fan theories about half the album being the media's perception of Taylor Swift and the other half being how, how she views herself. She re- yeah. Or what she thinks her true self is. Right, right. <laughs> and so it goes is like the turning point in the oh, theory. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. I'd have to that's, that's... read the lyrics to see if I buy it as an actual <laughs> conscious reference. But yeah. I Nick Lowe has yeah. a great song called So It Goes. But I don't think it's like you know, I think it's just a phrase also. <laughs> yeah, she she easily could have picked it up from people just no. saying it, or I don't think the reference goes beyond, that's a line from Vonnegut, right. but that's about it. And that's how Bagambo Snuffbox <laughs> came together. <laughs> that was Vonnegut News? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, question mark, question mark, question mark. How the book came together, this is officially the third collection of short stories by Kurt Vonnegut, but it's really kind of the second one. He did one very early in his career called Canary in a Cat House that didn't sell very well and wasn't very uh, shared around very popularly. I said shared like it's a web page. <laughs> and a lot of those stories, all but one of them, ended up in Welcome to the Monkey House, officially the second Kurt Vonnegut short story collection, but really the first notable one and famous one. Do you remember The Odd Man Out? What's the story that didn't? Yeah. yeah. So the one from Canary in a Cat House that didn't go on to Welcome to the Monkey House is called Hal Irwin's Magic Lamp. Oh, good. So we didn't skip it because it's in this one. Yeah, and it's in this one. And also this one contains Hal Irwin's Magic Lamp and two other stories that Vonnegut rewrote in between them being in magazines in the past Mm. and Bagambo Snuffbox down the line. And yeah, this book, Bagambo Snuffbox, 
collects a lot of stories that were in magazines but didn't make the grade for Canary in a Cat House or Welcome to the Monkey House. Yeah, and you can tell it spans a long time because one of the things I really noticed, I don't know if they're, are are they placed in chronological order in the book? Yeah, every story except Hellerwin's Magic Lamp is in chronological order. Okay, Yeah, you can totally see his writing style develop, so it's interesting in that way. But yeah, the really early stories feel really, really early. And like, wow, he's just starting out. (laughs) <laughs> and even he because he even says in the intro he was basically getting a paid literary apprenticeship like he was kind of interning publicly well like he says ad nauseum man in this book too uh he says he feels like he got to see atlanta sink beneath the waves because he lived before and after the time where you could write short stories and sell them and make your whole like years living that way yeah and they didn't even have to be great in the same way that you'll see TV shows today and not all of them are great and they still make it on the air yeah. because there was such an appetite for short stories. And then after TV, people are like, well, this is easier. Yeah, so this is almost like a time capsule of how he made his bank. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like it really is. It's The earliest short story in it is from September of 1950 and then the latest short story is October 1963. So over 13 13 years years of stories from Truman to Kennedy. And uh, you can see it. You can see it in, I think, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, And this was the last book he published with G.P. Putnam's Sons. It's unclear. uh, There's some interviews from the period of Timequake, which was his uh, novel before this, that he would say publicly that Timequake was like knocking out his contract with Putnam. Uh, so it's it's unclear if this was like wrapping up a contract with Putnam by doing this book or not. But he from there moved on to another publisher and then uh, left us with all of these stories from uh, the good old days. Yeah. Yeah. But that's pretty much how it came together. And he also is, as always, very open about his own situation and his own life and in his own books. So the intro explains a lot of like, yeah, I was writing for what were called the slicks and I was trying to make stories that would fit that. And you can see me doing that. And I don't think I was very good then. You know? Right. And it's uh, it's really interesting. And he talks about how it's not through his own archival that these stories exist which I thought was really interesting. He's just so (laughs) unenamored of his own work. He didn't save these stories and didn't have copies of them. He's like, (laughs) it just so happens that I became so famous afterwards that other people did the work of finding the last remaining copy of this magazine and transcribing the text. But uh, just like Kilgore Trout in Breakfast of Champions, which I thought was fake, but I'm amazed that he really does it just because I don't know any writer who would do this he writes things and throws them away immediately like he doesn't yeah. save his own things that's so weird to me <laughs> yeah especially i mean it was marginally trickier back then because you actually had to keep hard copies around but i'm still shocked he didn't because it's right. like look at me i'm in a magazine neat yeah file, like he kept copies you know? of the novels but the short stories he was like whatever they're yeah. just these things i bang out to pay the bills yeah <laughs> Let's uh let's make this another another whole segment. Let's do a segment called Intro Time. Back to the intro. beginning again, but this time even this time. earlier so earlier. we can explain. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> this uh this book is I think the first one we've read 
Well, the segment is let's look at the introduction of this book because it's really, really rich. And also, I think this is the first Vonnegut book we've done where there's a chunk of it written by someone else. I guess Fate's Worse Than Death has like a letter mm. by someone else. But this book has a preface by a guy named Peter Reed, who is an English professor at the University of Minnesota at this time and was a friend of Vonnegut's going back to the 70s. And it's just like a critical analysis of Vonnegut by a oh, friend of his. My edition does not have that. Oh, really? Interesting. Oh. Yeah. Starts <laughs> right with Kurt's introduction. Oh, I didn't need the Peter Reed thing that much, partly because we've like poured over mine. Sure. But uh, well, you could write the Peter Reed thing at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who needs him? Yeah, uh, yeah. So I guess depending on the edition. Because uh, oh, mine didn't, they didn't feel it was necessary, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Put it together for Kindle. Yeah, that's probably fair. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and before that, he does the disclaimer he often does with, as in my other works of fiction, all persons are living or dead, made up, etc. And I'm not even going to quote it all fully. All celebrity voices it? are impersonated poorly due to the adult <laughs> nature of this book. No children should ever read it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, and then there's a dedication to, in memory of my first agents, Kenneth Litauer and Max Wilkinson, who taught me how to write. And uh, yeah, they're the people who arranged selling most all of these stories, yeah. often to Vonnegut's friend Knox Berger, who was an mm-hmm. editor at Collier's and then elsewhere. And still, still named Knox yeah, Berger. The sounds best. like an alias that like Trump would make up. Like Vonnegut's like, yeah, I'm oh. selling all my stories to my friend, Knox Berger. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get him on the phone. This is Knox Berger. Yeah. <laughs> Has anyone ever met Knox Berger in person? <laughs> it's like the Tobias Funke around the water yeah, cooler exactly. rumors. Oh, like this yeah. Funke, I'm telling you. Yeah. Someone's telling me about this great burger. Wait, that's confusing. <laughs> Knoxburg. <laughs> the man, the human man. <laughs> anyway, real person anyway. is great. Yeah. And uh well the the Peter Reed intro, the only things that jumped out to me about it at one point he says that if there is one aspect of the stories that more than any other may make them seem dated, it is the roles of the women. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. We've hit it almost every time. And also... And, like, if you're going back to the stories that he wrote in 55, you're just like, yeah, there's going to be bad stuff, sexist <laughs> stuff in here. Yeah, it's and, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that. And uh, also, Reed says that Galapagos and Bluebeard, quote, powerfully expressed, end quote, sensitivity to women's concerns. Reed feels that way about Galapagos and Bluebeard. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily true of either of them. But it's they're they're both sort of least, steps. I feel yeah. like he was at least trying to do that in Bluebeard, but I don't see that at all in Galapagos. Maybe yeah. Reed is just giving him credit because he's like, that there were a bunch of women in it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think and so. And at the end, one of the women is in control, I guess, of the relationship in some way. Or it, certainly the dude becomes pathetic when he's just living on the beach in the hut. Right. And everyone hates him. But, man, I way before that, and I don't know how he lost it, Sirens of Titan, his very first novel, I think B, remains the most well-rounded female character he's ever written, which is yeah. insane that he never did better than his first female character in a novel. Yeah, maybe. She B even... is like a full human being who has <laughs> right. an arc and change it, like is one way at the beginning and then a different way at the end. <laughs> and within like a sci-fi novel with all kinds of crazy things exactly. to balance just writing technique wise. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, that, that he, other than that, Reed just kind of does historical background that we just talked about. And then from there you get into Kurt Vonnegut's introduction of the book, which is, I think maybe the most exciting piece of writing here. <laughs> oh, 
I, I don't say. agree with that at all. Yeah. Okay. I, you didn't like any of the stories? This yeah, I like my, short stories a lot, so. Oh, yeah. I am overall not a big fan of this book. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Maybe and now I'm trying to, because I always like it when I'm our grades super, are yeah, identical, yeah. so I'm trying to maybe revise my grade before we reveal them. I also, I anticipated that you would not be that into this book either, mainly because it's not very science fictional. And it's also, to me, not a lot of his top shelf short stories. All right. Well, what'd you like yeah. so much about the intro then? Let's, let's do this thing in <laughs> yeah, order yeah, yeah. at least. Yeah. Got to, uh, yeah. Segments, order, rules. Yeah, yeah. Why'd um, you like it? I know I, uh, the, I love the creative writing 101, but was there other stuff before we get to that? Because that's like yeah, the that, diamond. <laughs> that's really big, and especially a thing after it jumps out to me. Before that, I think he describes these stories very self-effacingly in a earnest and true and fun way. Like just the whole the whole intro works for me. He goes from this is how they came to be, and this is how it. This is why I wrote them, and what I intended with them, and I think I accomplished what I was aiming to do. You know. And then from there, Creative Writing 101, and then at the end of it, he talks about his sister and how and ways that this was all really sort of aimed at her, like all his work is. Yeah, he what jumped out at me were and he does he goes over the personal history of how he got into journalism, which is just a fun anecdote. Yeah, and then ended up a G and got bored and became a writer and blah blah blah. You get the recap of his whole life story. I love the section because he's never gone into detail before about selling used sobs. Oh, and like yeah. how awful they actually were. He's like, I had the privilege of selling like one of the worst cars ever. You had to mix the correct amount of oil in with the gas every time you filled up the tank, or the engine would fuse and just become a metal block the next time you drove it. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then he hits up Creative Writing 101. Did, are you pulling that out as a separate segment? Yeah. Let's do Okay. Because uh, we keep dropping it, but in case people haven't read it, we should basically. He gives you, like, here's Kurt Vonnegut's guide to how to write fiction in eight bullet points. Yeah, there's <laughs> a, a sub-segment called Creative Writing 101. Going Creative down down to the sub-segment. <laughs> so deep underground. <laughs> and I'm imagining that elevator from Stranger Things 2, where there's, like, facing... Spoilers! The... There's an elevator. <laughs> now I know everything. I can reverse engineer the whole season. <laughs> it, the whole show is just cool pulleys. <laughs> yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah, but this is I. It's like it's the his list of rules is so interesting and so short. I feel like we can basically just read it on air, sure, and let people enjoy it. it. This is and he really just jumps into it by finishing his last thought, which is that he he talks about Joseph Heller and himself and both of them being people who were World War II veterans, and he says that Vonnegut says that if he hadn't been in the war he would have been the garden editor for the indianapolis star mm. like he would have never had anything which is a really interesting thing and then there's just a line break and then straight from there now lend me your ears here is creative writing 101 then he gives eight rules number one use the time of a total stranger in such a way that he or she will not feel the time was wasted number two give the reader at least one character he or she can root for number three every character should want something even if it is only a glass of water Number four, every sentence must do one of two things, reveal character or advance the action. Number five, start as close to the end as possible. Number six, be a sadist. No matter how sweet and innocent your leading characters, make awful things happen to them in order that the reader may see what they are made of. Number seven, write to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, so to speak, your story will get pneumonia. Number eight, 
Give your readers as much information as possible as soon as possible. To heck with suspense, readers should have such complete understanding of what is going on, where and why, that they could finish the story themselves should cockroaches eat the last few pages. And then immediately after that, he says that Flannery O'Connor is the greatest American short story writer of his generation, and she broke practically every rule but the first one. Great writers tend to do that, end quote. As with anything, they're good rules to start with, but once you're a master of the art form, do whatever you want. Also, I want to immediately say, he's right, Flannery O'Connor, I highly recommend any book of short stories by her. She's... Kurt Vonnegut is still my favorite novelist, but Flannery O'Connor is way better at short stories than Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, just because we start every episode saying he's the greatest author of all time, I don't think that necessarily translates to, I wouldn't even put his short stories up against, you know, Asimov, Bradbury. There's a lot of better short story writers. Yeah, me too. I think I like, I'm... I'm surprised by, especially some plays we've seen and new things we've seen people being really, really excited about his short stories, especially like uh, Slice of Life stuff that mm-hmm. has no sci-fi or anything. And I I really, almost every amazing experience I've had with Vonnegut personally has been novels. Yeah. He, has a, he has some good short stories and is not like an incredible master of them or anything to me. Yeah. But yeah. don't tune out yet. Yeah, I shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't pile out it too much. Um, well, because I actually like, I do like going through the short story collections because it's like, it's very refreshing. It's like popping a bunch of Tic Tacs. Yeah. Because we're just, we're just going to boil down. It's like listening to Trout stories. This one was about this punchline. Oh, Which yeah. is very different than his novels, which really you can unpack infinitely. His short stories are much more like, I thought of one thing and I wrote it out. Punchline. Yeah, I actually I think I like Trout stories a whole lot too. It's Maybe just because you don't actually space. have to read them. Yeah, I love his novels and I really like his premises. His and strength then is the hook. Yeah. Middle space where he fully writes out a short story is like fine. Yeah, and occasionally amazing, as we've talked about. But yeah, and I really like that list. Like we've touched on that list out of context in the past too. Like looking at other novels when we say, yeah, of course he's putting no suspense into a book like Mother Night because uh, it, this is how he operates and it works for him. Right. And he recognizes that it is incredibly effective for him and not a thing at all for other people. Yeah, But even he breaks some of his rules. Like the title story, Bagambo Snuffbox, involves one of Kurt Vonnegut's only unreliable narrators ever that he ever wrote. Yeah. Like at the beginning, it is not, yeah. you are not omniscient. It's not revealed. You trust the narrator and then you realize by the end that he's lying to you, the audience as well. And that's funny because it's not an uncommon technique in writing at all, but it may be the only time Kurt ever did it. Because <laughs> yeah, he really doesn't like, like if someone's lying, they'll say the dialogue and then he almost compulsively goes, of course they were lying. Like you need to know the truth <laughs> of the situation. Um, but I thought it was interesting that in the title track, so to speak, yeah. He breaks rule six or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and and other ones elsewhere too. Yeah, it's really cool that mm-hmm. like you said, he's once you're a master, throw out the rules. Great. You know what you're doing. Uh, uh I had read a great list of similar things for rules for playwriting, and I thought a better way to put it was it's really like the most transcendent plays usually break one of the rules. But if oh. you break too many, you start to lose it loses the feeling that you know what you're doing. But if you don't break any, then it's like, you know, a classic wrote well-made play. And like, it was cool. It went through a bunch of examples of plays that are considered the greatest of all time. And it's like, look how formulaic it is, except one thing, it did the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do with that rule or whatever, you know. Cool. Like No Country for Old Men 
taking out the climactic battle scene that seems compulsory to show. They're yeah, like, let's yeah. just change that one thing that makes this an artistic masterpiece. Oh, that's a really cool frame, a way to frame that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, yeah. Now I just want to go through everything I've ever read or seen there you go. and find the, <laughs> find the twist. <laughs> that would be a very long podcast indeed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's the, the creative writing 101 <laughs> sub segment. While we still look at the intro from there, Vonnegut says, as he's mentioned a few times, especially in slapsticks intro, that a lot of his writing was aimed at his now deceased sister, Alice. Well, now deceased when he wrote it. She's also deceased now. You, you know what I mean. The time stream. I'm way unstuck. To, way to double down on her tragic death, Alex. <laughs> like she's dead in multiple times. <laughs> and he, uh, he says that, especially along with Rule 7, where you want to write for one person, he says that's his one person. And he, he doesn't know if people like Flannery O'Connor necessarily did that kind of thing, too. He just suspects it. But he says that, Everything was written toward just what he got to meet in her brain and her personality. And his short stories, his novels, everything else. And he, it's, I don't know, it's just sort of a, a touching thing to round it off with. Totally. Yeah. And then from there, we get into the stories. Let's yeah. get into a segment called Story Time. I'm so excited. Yeah, stories. For story timing. <laughs> I'm about to say the plot, and I think you'll like it. <laughs> We just talked about that song on the Crack Podcast. Oh, nice. And it's, uh, yeah, it was originally about a serial killer. Anyway, uh, okay. let's get into some stories in the book. And you actually, know, It's Raining Men was about when Wall Street crashed and dudes just jumped out the windows. Every song <laughs> no. is secretly horrible. <laughs> Celebrate Good Times, Holocaust song. <laughs> People don't know this, Alex. <laughs> That's why we're revealing this shit. The uh, the first story in the book is actually one of my favorites in the book. It's called Thanosphere and is written in 1950. And so it was written pre-space flight. I had to do like Googling and make sure right. like, is this a period piece when he wrote it or not? And the first human in space was 1961. So it is writing it in 1950, imagining a future technological achievement that no one's done. Right. Although at that time, everyone knew that secretly and not so secretly, Russia and America, or I guess the USSR and America, were both racing to try and get to space. Yeah. Like, it was a known goal. So, yeah, there's this pocket of time where tons of short story writers were writing in the sci-fi genre, were writing predictions about what space flight will be. And then as soon as space flight was real, all those immediately became obsolete like, predictions. <laughs> it was one of the quickest turnarounds. Because, you know, like, yeah. Star Trek will say, oh, one day there's going to be a replicator. And you're like... Well, we won't know how dumbly wrong you really were for about a million years. But this was like, oh, we're going to space and it's going to be like this. And then eight years later, they're like, no, it was nothing like that. That <laughs> All that shit was silly that you made up. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> I suppose it would be sort of like trying to write a self-driving car a year or two ago because we're almost there. And right. so it's the kind of thing where I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are getting it right. And you get really detailed and you're like, yeah, the kids sit in a back bubble facing backwards. And then like in three years, we have self-driving cars and they're nothing like that. <laughs> yeah. Your story just feels so dated immediately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's also uh, features the first story features the first appearance of what I'm coming to realize is his favorite name, Rice. Did you notice that? There was a lot of Rice. There are eight characters whose either last or first names are Rice in this book. 
Yeah. All unrelated to each other. I don't get that. Well, and this one also has the Long Vonnegut tradition of a pretty gnarly German name, too, with Grosinger. So this is all the, all the name tricks. Yeah. They're all happening. So Major Rice is up in space. Isn't it nice? We're winning the race. <laughs> yeah, it's the American side of the space race, and they have secretly sent up the first person in space, but they don't want to tell anyone because his job is mostly to track weather for military purposes and like watch for nukes for military purposes and so major alan rice is up there dr grosinger is on the ground talking to him and rice starts to hear voices he starts to hear voices up in space and they're like oh what could all these voices be and then it's unspooled that the voices are the dead and so it turns out uh the grateful dead (laughs) (laughs) sick tunes and uh so it turns out that by sending someone up into space, we realize that the space right around the planet is where dead people go, and you end up hearing all of them all at once if you're up there. Yeah, and presumably, like, the whole void of space is filled with dead people. Yeah. You don't see them, you just hear them. They confirm it because, you know, he says stuff only dead people would know. They're like, this is some kind of prank. Did you go nuts? And then they try to bring him down, but he refuses to come down because his dead wife starts talking to him, which is bitterly ironic because they picked him because he had no living loved ones. Right. So he's perfect to go up in space for eight months and not come down. And now he's (laughs) like, totally, the mission's totally compromised because his wife, dead wife, is like, I missed you. And he's like, oh, God, honey. So basically (laughs) all that happens is, that's the punchline. They find that out. All that happens to the world is like, we don't know yet. The story ends with them. There's uh, some ham radio operators pick up on the signals, so there's a threat that the information will be revealed to the public, but they successfully cover it up, which I was like, in a short story, why bring up the leak if you're going to cover it up a page (laughs) later and nothing (laughs) happened? But anyway, and it just ends with Grosinger thinking about how the future is going to be crazy because we know this now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And some of the guys are and like, the next astronaut we send up will have some kind of brain jamming device or something to block the voices. And he's like, well, whatever happens, it's going to be crazy. <laughs> and it just ends with that. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's and just it's... like presenting an idea and then backing out of the room. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm now feeling bad about speaking poorly of this book because this, this story, the more I think about this story, the more I like it and maybe maybe i was frustrated that other ones didn't hit me as much often but it's it it really works for me as like a simple 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 sci-fi story it also it feels like it has elements of sirens of titan in the way as soon as they get into space and sirens of titan there's chronos and clastic infidibulums and all kinds of complications like this is sort of a really rough draft of that kind of sci-fi concept yeah i didn't care for it (laughs) oh yeah it's fine yeah let's go through each this will be fun so next one is mnemonics, which, as you know, is a, like a device you use to aid memory. And it's about a guy who develops a memory palace technique, which is the technique where if you're trying to remember a long list of things, you create a funny anecdote or story or visual image, and you imagine placing it in a room you're very familiar with in your mind. Yeah. So you can be like, I have to remember everything I need to pack today. Well, in my memory palace... There's a trout on the desk smoking a cigarette, so I know I want to pack my Vonnegut books or whatever. (laughs) Um, So it basically just escalates with him getting better and better at it, more and more confident. And then one day his boss calls and is like, do you have a paper and pen? And he's so cocky. He's like, yeah, just fire away. And he's like, okay, 
you have to remember these 800 things in order and they're crucially important or the company's screwed. And he says them all real quick and says, got it? Okay, bye. Yeah. So now he's frantically constructing the most elaborate memory palace he's ever constructed. He succeeds. He does, he write, he's able to like do everything from the list. And yet at the end, one creature or like one image from the memory palace is still lingering and he can't remember what it's supposed to be, like what it's supposed to represent. It's just his secretary holding papers. And I guess because he feels so smooth because he remembered so much, on a whim, he pulls the secretary to him and he's like, and what's on your mind, pretty little baby? And she's like, oh, Mr. Moorhead. It turns out that really was a secretary physically standing there. Because also his memory palace, the entire, every element of it is like a famous babe. Like they're all oh, beautiful right. celebrity women. His trick is women yeah. he'd like to sleep with. So he imagines his secretary's also in there. Yeah. Like like Marilyn Monroe and Rosalind Russell and all these like. And his yeah. secretary. His real secretary. That's yeah. what's creepy. And then the other thing is he doesn't know how to talk to his secretary who he has a crush on. And so then this right. like breaks him out of it because the, he needs to fill such a palace. He ends up putting her in it. And then she is like pleased. He uh, She's pleased. Makes moves on her. So he mistakenly sexu- sexually harasses his secretary. <laughs> and it's cool because women like it when you do that. That's this story. I didn't care for it. Yeah, it's very well. It, it uh, thought it was one of the most most problematic stories, certainly in the book. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's very retrograde, and it's trying to be very cute, and it's it, and I could kind of see it coming. I think. Well, that's a through line with Vonnegut's sexism is that he seemed to actually abide by, or just not check himself enough and take for granted, the idea that it's cute and romantic for the dude to just take the woman, like caveman style. And that's (laughs) not anymore something we think of as romantic. We think of it as unnecessarily aggressive. Right. But yeah, he'll have stories later where it's like, you can tell from the way the story broke out, you're supposed to be happy about the couple reconciling, but the sentence will be like, so he just said, shut up, and lifted her off the ground and threw her on the bed, and everything was fine. And you're like, oh, that wrapped up very uh, <laughs> conveniently for the man. Yeah, I, I wonder what the woman's thinking. I hope she's okay. Yeah. Cool with it. Yeah. Next, the next story from there is any reasonable offer, and it's sort of a long prank story. Mm-hmm. It's people who call themselves Colonel and Mrs. Peckham, and they are visiting a house with a real estate agent, and they're like, "Why don't I just try out this mansion before I buy it? Because I definitely have the money to buy it." And then they continue to do that around town, and they end up uh, just like getting a lot of free wine and cigars and stuff out of people. The real shocking takeaway is that apparently at this time you could stay at an open house for multiple days. Yeah, because they like they're going to mansions, they're going mansion shopping, pretending to be rich when they're not. And saying, like, we're Colonel and Mrs. Peckham. Do you mind if, while we debate whether we buy the house, we stay with you for three days? Eat your food, drink your drinks, smoke your cigars, walk the grounds, get to know the house. And everyone's like, yeah, that's a reasonable, normal thing that people do when they're looking for a new house. That was just insane to me. The times have changed. but um, (laughs) And then the punchline is the real estate agent who is narrating the story is like, that's a good scam. I think I'm going to do that. That's the right. <laughs> yeah, he like calls and plans one for himself. Yeah. <laughs> it's just an idea for a crime. Right. Yeah. It's yeah, like yeah. when I would go to Tower Records and plan with my friends how we would shoplift a bunch of CDs successfully. Then not do it, <laughs> but like clever ways to get them out of the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Crime plan. 
Oh, CDs. And and this is actually, yeah, and as far as what time it is, this was published in Collier's in January 1952. So yeah, apparently in 1952 there was like mm-hmm. there were very relaxed policies for <laughs> visiting yeah. mansions. It was great. The package yeah, is the next, next one. Uh features Maud and Earl Fenton, uh, who are like a middle class f- couple who by their own bragging um, <laughs> pulled their, themselves up by their bootstraps the husband's very like bitter and has kind of an inferiority complex because when he went to college he had to work his way through college and no one else did like he all the frats he was in were with all these rich people who inherited money yeah which is so funny because at the same time they're talking about their servants and <laughs> right. they're like right. oh muffy can't you see how like like he even bemoans he's like i was giving nothing in this life and then he, and then it's like, and then he turned to the servants and was like, "Get dinner ready, you stupid servants." Yeah. And I'm sure that's intentional commentary, um, <laughs> because basically they come back now that he's rich through hard work, and they come back from this lavish round the world trip, and they've bought the perfect house, which they call refer to as the package, because it's not just a house; their lives will be perfect, like they've bought yeah. the perfect life. It has all these fancy. It's a mildly sci-fi house. It has all these buttons that do. That we have now. It's like one of those connected homes where the music follows you and the lights dim and stuff. <laughs> and basically, an old friend comes to visit. Why don't you tell him about Charlie? Yeah, Charlie was born into a little more wealth. Well, yeah, like you say, the technology feels very normal now, like the perks. And also the difference in wealth feels even smaller now like, it was like it was like oh the the main character had to do a job while in college but that could pay for college somehow or and something it, right amazing and it makes him know? feel bitterly inferior for the rest of his life that's weird yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he uh yeah so charlie freeman rolls into town there's also a photographer named slotkin who's at the same time f- photographing the house and earl and maude in it for like a magazine like a better home show garden show spread yeah yeah and they're mad at Charlie for being very neutral about things. And, but they also notice like, oh, his clothes are a little shabby and he seems a little tired and like, oh, I wonder if he's fallen on hard times. Ha 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 ha. And then, and then it, yeah, he was rich in college and yeah. now is clearly not. And they, so like subtly they do digs at him and lord it over him. Yeah. And it, he eventually like explains. Oh, and briefly, which will be important, they discuss China because he's just been around the world, and he's like, I'm worldly, I know China, all they need is a little hard work. Earl is, yeah. 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 He's like, uh, I was just in China, I think I can speak with some authority on the subject, there's nothing there that a little American know-how wouldn't fix. And the guy's like, (laughs) "All right, that's an interesting take. Yeah. (laughs) And Charlie's like, I don't know, I just figured China's more complicated than that, but that's fine. And then this this whole story felt very O. Henry to me, and the Mm -hmm. twist is that Charlie gave up his money to like build a hospital in China and run it for the last 30 years. So he's just yeah. been the greatest and kindest person in he's the world. He's the doctor from Cat's Cradle who went to the yeah. jungle and built the House of Hope. Yeah. But like but like a version who worked like it was effective. Right. Like it and of yeah, course yeah. that makes the high and mighty middle class people now feel like shit. Yeah. End of story. The yeah. moral of the story being the middle class are evil and petty, and the, those born into wealth are charitable and feel deeply for their common man. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny moral. <laughs> Next. Yeah. Next story is called The No Talent Kid. And this book is like secretly, at least uh, in parts of it, a book about high school marching bands. 
There are a lot of high school marching band stories. Well, there's, I think, four stories with George M. Helmholtz, right? Yeah, was, I think so, yeah. yeah. That, so, and every, he's like an encyclopedia brown for Vonnegut. If it's George <laughs> M. Helmholtz, there's going to be a little moral quandary with a student, and he's right. going to get to the bottom of it, and it's going <laughs> to teach you something about kids. Yeah, yeah, it's always a little mystery, yeah. yeah. And uh, this this Helmholtz mystery for you, you <laughs> youngsters is uh, there's a kid named Plummer who is a very, very untalented clarinet. His only skill is he can hold, hold a note a real, real long time because he's like physically strong. He's like yeah. bulked himself up. And that he bought the hottest, newest, best clarinet, which he thinks means he'll magically be great now. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's also a guy named Flammer who's the best clarinetist and Plummer wants to catch Flammer, but Flammer's way better than Plummer, etc. And so Plummer keeps challenging you can like challenge for chairs in this marching band and there's a couple of tiers to it brutal system for school yeah it's really it's rough. like it's not even the stress of like there's tryouts and not everyone can make the team <clears throat> it's every two weeks anyone can challenge anyone and if they beat them that person loses their seat yeah to them yeah <laughs> which is uh, uh helmholtz is is cruel yes. he's insane he's whiplash guy yeah <laughs> yeah oh I'd, I'd like to see that as a thing but uh so helmholtz Helmholtz keeps trying to figure out why Plummer just keeps pushing for chairs he'll never get. And then also, uh, Helmholtz's band has lost the recent competition because they don't have a big enough giant bass drum. Then there's a Shriners-type group called the Knights of Kandahar in town that is going out of business because of some fraud. And so they're selling their giant bass drum. There's a race to get the bass drum and deal with Plummer. Because all the, like in this town, marching band's the most important thing. So everyone, yeah. all the schools, more than football or whatever. So all the schools look for gimmicks. And so there's multiple marching bands that are like, that giant bass drum is for sale. And they all want it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a, it's a very like drum and bugle core town, like those competitive bands that do this. And then in the process of Helmholtz trying to get the drum and trying to work out Plummer, it turns out that Plummer bought the drum. And so then Plummer brings it in and says, great, now that I have this drum, I will play this drum in the top band. I get well, to and it's the a good band. fake out because his mother says, uh, I don't know where he is. He sold his clarinet. And he's like, oh, good. He must have given up on music. Yeah. And he's like, surprise, I traded it for the giant drum I know you need. <laughs> and he's like, now you have to put me in A band because I can play the drum. And he's like, I still won't because you're going to be bad at it. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're not good at music. Yeah. And then um, Plummer like runs off very angrily with the drum. And then he pulls it so impressively that Helmholtz is like, you can be the top band's drum puller. And that's just as important as being a musician in this drum situation. And now you're in the band, right? And he's like, I'm in the band then? And he goes, sure. And he's <laughs> like, all right, you could have the drum. I just wanted to be in the band. I don't care about learning an instrument. <laughs> yeah. The story's like almost a hostage situation. Oh, it's yeah. It's not even like... <laughs> it's a kid blackmailing the teacher for a spot in the play. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Then we have Poor Little Rich Town, which you yeah. and I saw staged in the play, uh, what was it called, Vonnegut USA? Yeah, this yeah. this and I think at least one other story here, yeah. So Poor Little Rich Town is basically, I mean, I can nutshell it in one sentence, <laughs> a, uh, a quiet, simple village is invaded by a world-famous efficiency expert who radicalizes all their processes, revealing right. to the townspeople that maybe being inefficient isn't so bad after all. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's a long sentence, but... I'm it, buying a ticket now. It's I'm buying it a ticket. It's this town it of... It sounds great. <laughs> this guy who's amazing at efficiency but doesn't understand soul. It's a very GE 
Yeah. It's like he has a few stories where he's just like, I hated my desk job. And this is one of them. <laughs> this guy who represents industry comes into town and everything in town is quaint and lovely. But he, of course, is like, no, it must be efficient. You know, like the postmistress is like, I've had these desk plants, these plants here for 30 years. And he's like, plants are inefficient, no plants. So it's <laughs> uh, such an obvious parable. Um, industry comes and crushes things for the sake of efficiency, but then the village, re- who first were really lobbying for him to move there, they realized that all oh, the old-fashioned ways weren't so bad. <laughs> like, <laughs> they've lost some of the magic quaintness of their town. Yeah. So they flip it on him, and now they're like, You'll have to work to earn your place in the town. We're not going to let you come in here and change everything. Yeah. Like, basically, they just tell everyone in the town who up to then had been kowtowing to him, stop kowtowing to him. If he tells you to do something you don't want to do, tell him no. Right. He has to get used to our ways. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also, it's another Vonnegut fire department story. The town has a fire department and they think like, oh, if we put him in the fire department, then he'll be like part of our circle and raise our land prices by moving here and stuff. And then at the end, they're like, he's out of the fire department. Yeah. Because he immediately- The cruelest punishment there is. No more fire department. All they cared about was the town was going to buy a shiny new fire truck, which was going to be very important to not just the fire department, but everyone in town because it's much a small town. They would have like parades and be proud of the fire truck and it's this morale booster but he of course rightly points out what does the old fire truck not work and they're like no it'll probably work for another 10 years and he's like then you'll buy a new fire truck in 10 years (laughs) and they're like we don't want you to be president anymore (laughs) (laughs) and you're and you're right that this really is a ge story too like vonnegut with his first novel player piano it came out in august 1952 this story came out in october 1952 and this whole period he had been writing these short stories as he says in the intro partly to get out of his day job at ge and he immediately left his day job to write stories about how much he hates ge and companies like it which you just call (laughs) the general forge and foundry company instead of general electric yeah Yeah. (laughs) next story is called souvenir this is, uh, it's like, I think the first time in the book we have a true World War II kind of story. Yes. Bonnegut doing his World War II thing. And I thought it was the first story, and I'll bring it up in Kurt Blurts, where he wrote a passage that actually felt like Kurt. Um, yeah. All his short stories read as much more generic writing. Like, he doesn't say any of the wild stuff you expect Kurt to say, like, directly address the audience, use weird parentheticals, all that stuff. Yeah. Throw a sketch in here and there. <laughs> None of that. He's trying to fit in, right? He's George Carlin as in the early days. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I thought just the rawness of his war experience brought his real self out. Because in that story, there's more Kurtisms. Yeah, there really is. Yeah, especially just describing the basics of the war. And, and also how brutal it is. Uh, The initial setup is it's the quote-unquote modern day after the war, and there's a pawnbroker named Joe Bain, who uh, Vonnegut says uh, Bain, if he wasn't such a good pawnbroker, would probably rather be dead. (laughs) And then uh, Bain has a farmer come in. Farmer wants to sell him an amazing watch. Bain is going to rip him off on it. Bain says, you want to share me (laughs) this watch? Gotham has no need of watches. (laughs) Sorry. He said Bane three times. It summons him. I did think, (laughs) like Beetlejuice, yeah. Yeah. Man, that that character so owns that name. 
It's very hard to just give it to somebody. So Joe B, the pun broker, (laughs) then he's like, well, I can give you barely any money for this amazing watch. And the farmer's like, fine, fine. Anyway, here's the story of the watch. And it's because the farmer, his name's Eddie. He was a soldier in World War II. He and another soldier were catching prisoners at the very end of the war. And they caught two German prisoners, a young one and an old one. And it leads to a total bloodbath where I think everybody dies but Eddie. And then the younger German prisoner had said, hey, this older German prisoner is like a high-level general. You can turn him in for a reward. And they're like, there's not really like, we're, we're not like operating on rewards. We're just going to turn him in. And then there's a fracas. And then uh, Eddie ends up with the watch and he's like, and then he brings the watch back to It America. was the German general's watch. Yeah. And basically the revelation I think you were supposed to gather is that, like you thought they were two random Nazis, but no, the general is obviously a real important Nazi and the young person is like his personal bodyguard. Right. So there's a lot more danger than you thought because they're more desperate than you thought. They're not just random guys. So they murder... Uh, <coughs> Eddie's best friend Buzzer yeah. to get his uniform so that when they get captured they can try and pretend to be American and then the old man because Eddie gets away with his uniform still on his body the old man doesn't have a uniform so he just shoots himself in the head Yeah, and you're like whoa that was quite a drastic decision <laughs> cut back to the pawn shop Eddie says, I don't want to sell it because you're being a dick and you're undervaluing it. Well, he actually, I don't think he even figures out the scheme. He just says like, well, if this watch is worth so little, little I guess I'll keep it. I may it. as well just keep it. And then Bane's like, no, 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 no. I'll give you more, okay. but it's too late. Yeah. Eddie's not a haggler. Yeah. Um, and at that point, a local kid who he had sent out to ask a local German person to translate the inscription on the watch comes back. And it turns out the inscription is like, to my second highest ranking general, you yeah. really led the war effort, your pal Hitler, which of course means it's worth like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's Heinz Guderian, as the ch- who was like a real, okay, very, very high ranking okay. general. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a watch that uh, Hitler sent Eichmann, which would be, you know, insanely valuable. Punch Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's dark and bloody and kind of cool. Like, I'm, I'm amazed that a magazine for people to calmly read in the early 50s in their house. Brenda, that weird cool. fact it appeared in the very first issue of cat fancy the story <laughs> the opening salvo <laughs> in the 50s cat fancy was a literary journal yes with brutal depictions of man's inhumanity to man <laughs> and cat <laughs> next up the cruise of the jolly roger this one is about uh armin tamzarian from the simpsons <laughs> <laughs> yep uh, correct <laughs> it's he's a no good nick who tries to join the army to straighten out. Alex is dying. I love it. (laughs) And there's an older man who takes him under his wing. And for want of a life dream, he steals that guy's life dream. Rather than to be the principal of an elementary school, (laughs) it's to get a boat and sail around aimlessly. Like he's like, that's what I'm going to do when I get back from all this mess. So he does that because that guy died. And he's like, I'll do that guy's dream. And basically the story is like a travel journal of him going around and feeling less than, disenfranchised, unhappy. All these other people seem happier, more sophisticated than him, and he feels that they look down on him. Uh, And then what happens to change his mind? Oh, he He, drops in. Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, his name's Major Nathan Durant, but I'm just going to call him Armin Tanzarian in my head forever. (laughs) And he, yeah, he sort of loses his way after getting injured in the war. He ends up in a town where his buddy uh, George Pefko used to live, uh, but there's a memorial to him in the town. And then Durant sees kid, local kids like give respect to the little memorial because they're like, oh, it's a memorial and it means something. And at first, nice. the local town's lady who he just bumped into showed him where the plaque is. At first, he's still cynical. He's like, 
but he's dead. Like, what is this? This stupid plaque. No one knew him. You guys don't even know. It. And then it's so, I'm sorry. It's like a watered down Saving Private Ryan. It's very patriotic. Because yeah, then yeah. Sh- she's like, hey, little kid, why don't you explain to him? Why war is good. <laughs> or not good, but... <laughs> and the kid's like, oh, gee, mister, you make it so we can have our lives and we're all safe and happy. Yeah. And he's like, that is what we did it for. My God. All that horror I went through was making these kids safe back home. I am a hero. Yeah. George was a hero. I feel good again. Now God I can, bless America. Yeah. Now I can date this woman instead <laughs> yeah. of just looking beyond her. Oh, yeah. And that, again, problematic. Then he's like, There's to a, show that he's got his groove back, so to speak, he's literally just to this lady he just met today, like, hey, you want to come back on my boat? And she's like, that sounds great. <laughs> and the implication is that he's going to fuck this stranger on his boat. And that's that's how you know he feels good about himself again. But whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's. It's a story that it started weirdly dark in a really good way. Like this one, just like the previous one, it had some kind of cool descriptions of war darkness early on, and then it ended very ordinary, like very rote to me. Yeah, or at least safe. Like God plus, bless America, plus a boat attack. <laughs> we only do war because we have to. We're the good guys. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, as we know, Vonnegut would view in not such black and white terms later on. And I wonder if he even was just writing for his audience. You know. Yeah, I think like so, it was yeah. too early in his career to write. War is both good and bad. A senseless morass of gray area that we may never work our way through. People are like, just get us the short story, you know. This uh, <laughs> this particular story published in April 1953 in a magazine called Cape Cod Compass. Yeah, so they don't even, want you pushing the boundaries of darkness. <laughs> well, and I think it's even set in Martha's Vineyard in Cape Cod because that's like where the magazine. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> like if they'd turned it down, he probably redoes it for like Connecticut or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next story is called Custom Made Bride. And this is, a, it's not a custom storm window salesman, which he does a lot, <laughs> but he uses a financial advisor character as a way to get into people's lives. And he does financial advisor, if you count the monkey house as well, three or four times. That's a popular. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I probably didn't explain it enough when I said it. There's a f- uh, we've found with a lot of his short stories that he'll use storm window salesmen or now financial advisors as ways to just enter people's homes and observe their lives for narrative purposes. Which is interesting because I feel like most authors... If they wanted to talk about, for example, later we'll talk about a story where a marriage is falling apart. And you'd think the author would just take the camera, so to speak, into their home and describe what happens. But he feels the need to be like, so this storm window salesman was installing storm windows and peeked through the windows. And that's how he saw this couple's marriage is falling apart. And you're like, who needed the storm window guy to be there? Right. <laughs> just just tell us. Yeah. So the financial advisor works with a genius designer named Otto Crumbine and uh, uh, he's told that Crumbine has spent all his money making two women happy, Kitty and Falloline. And it turns out that both women are one woman. It's his, his wife. wife who he has redesigned like he redesigns everything else. He took Kitty and he renamed her Falloline and redesigned everything about her. Tells her what to wear, how to walk, everything. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very cute story of like a husband realizing that he changed his wife a bunch and he was actually much happier with the real person and the authentic her. And yes. so they flip it back at the end. And it's only mildly problematic, I would say, because, yeah. well, he learns the right lesson, which is, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And then it's fo- just funny to me that the very last thing, though, is she's like, uh, he's like, but you're still going to dress and look like Falloline, right? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to be Kitty. 
Right. But I'll still, don't worry, I'm going to still wear all the things you told me to wear and look the way you want me to look. Yeah. And they're both happy with that. Whatever. <laughs> I'll still be a glamour model all of the time in just our house. Yeah, for Yeah, sure. but I'll stop being silent, <laughs> I guess. I guess it's just that she, like, started just shutting up and being a statue, and he's like, well, you could talk still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but still look great. Yeah. Um, next, ambitious sophomore. Sophomore, that should tip you off. George M. Helmholtz story. Helmholtz, baby. This time, the Casey's got a crack. <laughs> the kid of the week. is uh, <laughs> Yeah, Superintendent Chalmers rushes in. He's very upset with him <laughs> for having spent too much on the band uniforms. And he's like, well, I needed this extra one because I have this really unshapely, like, chub kid with narrow shoulders. Yeah. And he's totally <laughs> lost his confidence and his playing stinks, and he used to be virtuoso. And my theory is the costume will work. And right. it does. It comes, and it's like a muscle suit. Like, it has a bunch of padding, and it yeah. makes him feel good again. And he walks up and down the school hallways, and girls look at him again. And he gets his courage up, and he starts playing well again. Uh, then they go to the big competition, whatever yeah. next one's coming Battle up. Battle of the bands. Yeah, where all the marching bands are sort of milling around waiting to do their thing. And a bully from a rival school comes over and pokes his padded shoulders, bullies him, ends up ripping his coat off and being like, you know, the carry treatment. Look at you, you pathetic nerd. You're just, a, you <laughs> suck. I'm full of hate for no reason because I'm the bully character. Uh, he punches the bully in the nose. Helmholtz breaks it up. The bully runs away. Helmholtz is like, well, now we're screwed because he's marching in just like his overshirt. Yeah. And he's, and the end of the song relies entirely upon a piccolo solo, his piccolo solo, and it's going to suck. So he just, in total resignation, leads the march, expecting it to flop. And the kid plays the best solo he's ever played. And then the only real punchline is Helmholtz, and this is a recurring punchline with Helmholtz, is that he's like Dr. House. He can't understand human emotions. Another teacher has to explain to him he didn't need the suit anymore because that girl that he passed that gave him the eye, he's now getting his confidence from that. He just needed confidence. It was inside him all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, classic ending, but... Yeah, he, like, finds love in time, and right. so he's okay. And he's like, now he has one person to play for, you know? That's his sister. Oh. I'm not trying to say Vonnegut wanted to date his sister Allie, but <laughs> right, right. he's got a, an object of his admiration, so he's trying to show off for her, so he did a good job. Yeah. And his... Helmholtz is like, oh, right, that's how humans work. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that you brought up Encyclopedia Brown. That really <laughs> formats all these Helmholtz stories in my head. The yeah. kid's really likable in that one. You feel good when it when it works out for him, yeah. Yeah. Next story is called Bagambo Snuffbox. Hey, the title story. Yay. And this is, uh, like you said uh, earlier on, it's an unreliable narrator kind of thing. It's a guy named Eddie Laird who revisits a town after his worldly adventures going all over the place to visit his ex-wife, Amy, who he married long, long ago for a brief time. And uh, her, she also has a husband, Harry, now, and he goes and like checks out their very domestic situation and talks about all his worldly adventures. And he also tries to give them a gift of a snuff box from the faraway place of Bagambo, to be very impressive. Which is an island uh, off the coast of India. He mistakenly says it's off the coast of Africa, yeah. which is when everything starts to unravel. Because yeah, their kid yeah. comes home from school and is like, oh, yeah, we just studied Bagambo. It's off the coast of Africa or India. And he's like, no, Africa. And he gets confused about which it is. And then the kid looks on the bottom and he's like, then why does it say made in Japan? And he's like, <laughs> well, see, they export it from Africa. No, India. And the Japanese Ooh. market it. And they're like, well, why would they send it so far? And then he's like, 
you know what? Dinner's been lovely. I got to go. And that's when you realize this guy is just like a pathetic asshole who was trying. It's very much like the package story. It's an O. Henry again. He was trying to hi-hat them. Right. And he fails and he gets back in his car and the punchline is he calls his wife. And you're like, (laughs) oh, you're married? And she's like, how are things, honey? All the kids have the croup. And he's like, I'll nail this potato salesman job yet. Like his life (laughs) is equally mundane and stupid. Yeah, (laughs) He was just talking out his ass. Because of other things he brought up, I'm imagining him leaving the house like, oh, the steamed hams were great. Thanks for (laughs) being from Utica. (laughs) (laughs) Well, from Rochester, I've never heard anyone say steamed hams. It's an Albany expression. <laughs> yeah. The Northern Light, at this time of year, at this time of day, localized entirely within your kitchen. Yes. May I see them? No. <laughs> One of the best like Just sequences so of Simpsons of all time. Yeah. And this was uh, this was in Cosmopolitan in October 1954. There's also a part in the intro where uh, Vonnegut says that one monthly that had bought several of my stories, Cosmopolitan, now survives as a harrowingly explicit sex manual. That's a good line. Which yeah. is great. I like they also later talk, someone talks about they make decent money and they're like, you know, more than a school teacher, less than the school janitor. That's a great joke. Really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor teachers. Yeah. A good joke, not a good social <laughs> not situation. A, not a good reality. Uh, is it am I up? Yeah. Okay. Next is my favorite story in the book. Cool. What'd you think of this one? The... I was pretty into it. Yeah. yeah the yeah. powder blue dragon. And I think it's funny to note that in the afterword, Vonnegut notes there are three stories in this that he hates the endings of. He says they those stories had such promising starts and the endings were so asinine. One of them is this story, and I disagree. I think it's one of the strongest endings in the book. This is one he rewrote. So maybe so the it was ending like might have been worse before. terrible before okay. or something. And maybe. yeah, because it, it also I think one thing I bumped on reading this store this collection in, in just a few sittings and start to finish is that a lot of the stories have very like pat endings. And so if you read them all in a row, you start to be like, okay. Is it's going to have a pat ending, right? And, and a, this one yeah. doesn't. It's great. A ton of the stories, though, are about feelings of class superiority or inferiority amongst upper middle class white people, which I do think is very funny, specific <laughs> scope. Yeah. Like a lot of the conflict in this book comes from like, he makes seven figures and I only make six figures. He's going to look down on me. <laughs> I should be furious. I have this. less servants. How do I gra- How do I reconcile with this life I've been given? <laughs> so in The Powder Blue Dragon, a young man named Kia or Kaya, how'd you say it? I said Kaya. Okay, that sounds better because Kia is a kind of car and that's going to get confusing. It's confusing, yeah. So Kaya is a poor mechanic living in a small village. And again, he has great feelings of inferiority. And because he's a mechanic and he loves cars, to him, the ultimate status symbol is a car. So he has spent years and years and years living on almost nothing, saving up for the ultimate supercar, which he calls his powder blue dragon. It's actually called something I'm not going to try and pronounce. Alex? It's like a Maritima Frascati, which I I think is a made-up kind of Italian car. But I like, uh, someone calls it the vanilla Frappuccino at some point, or something like that. Frappuccinos didn't exist yet, but they're like, the vanilla 
a frappe, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, so he buys it. He has it shipped to the island. It's such a fancy car, there's only like a dozen in the world. And if you don't know this about sports cars that can go 140 miles, especially the ones built in the 40s and 50s, you ease into them. So the mechanic's like, here's your car. Drive under 50 for the first 2,000 miles. Then you can go up to 80. And then after you've hit 5,000 miles, it'll go 140 like you want. Just don't. You know, ease into it. Yeah. He goes cruising around, feels great about himself, decides on a whim to stop into a bar, hotel bar. Oh, he because he follows a girl that he thinks he's having a moment with, but he's not. Yeah, like a rich, <laughs> yeah. a rich girl. Yeah. And, uh, and then he tries to be cool in the bar with her, even though people are calling him Sonny. And it's stuff. just him, her, yeah. the bartender, and then eventually her fiancé also comes in. Right. And he realizes, sadly, that no one in the bar ever asked him his name or what he did. He kept trying to bring up cars and brag about his car, and just no one's impressed. He thought he was going to, like, right. this woman would get in his car with him, you know? And it turns <laughs> out she's just some lady waiting for a fiancé. Everything's mundane. Like, his life has not changed. Right, and he just fact, has a car now. The rich people still look down on him because he wears shabby clothes and his hands have axle grease on them. Like, they don't believe it's his car. They make jokes about it. So anyway, he gets so upset, he's like, well, I'll race you, motherfucker. Because this guy's so rich, he also has a very nice car. And the guy's like, that's fine, son. We have shit to do. And they leave. He hops in his car, catches up to them on the freeway by going faster than he's supposed to. Yeah. Flips them the finger and, like, revs his engine, and they're still just, like, smiling and waving. Like, like we're okay, not going to help you beat your inferiority. Right. <laughs> not only are you inferior, you can never even contend with us. Like, we're yeah. not even going to let you compete in any. He gets so mad that he just uh, goes pedal to the metal as fast as it can go, like 150 miles an hour, yeah. until the engine seizes up. The car spins off the road. He calls a tow truck, walks home. The end. Yeah. And then his boss is like, obviously, why the fuck did you do that? <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, but I'm glad I did. And I really like that story. Yeah. <laughs> it, it felt like... Especially given that he Vonnegut rewrote it down the line, we see him in a lot of stuff, but especially Timequake right before this, being very obsessed with Hemingway and thinking about Hemingway a lot. And this story felt like, at least the revised version, felt like Vonnegut doing Hemingway and doing it pretty well. It was cool. Yeah, it's like joining a club you don't want to be a member of, right? Yeah. Yeah. If this status symbol symbolizes I'm in this club and all these people are assholes, then I don't want the status symbol. I was wrong. I didn't want it after all. Yeah. And he goes yeah. back to his life and he's happy, presumably. <laughs> Buys a Kia. Yeah. And, it's not, people. <laughs> and the ending's not like belabored it's just like it just drops off in a way that really makes it pay off right know? he it's doesn't great. say like because it's the, everything wrong with the world man and i i just knew it then all he says is killed it and i'm glad i did yeah 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 next up hey perfect for the holidays it's called a present for big saint nick a story about a gangster named big nick and also his uh enforcer named bernie o'hare with a wife wanda and son willie and then some other families who work for big nick too and it turns out that Big Nick does like a Santa routine for the families every year. And they all hate it because he's obviously a gross, violent gangster who's really terrible. <laughs> and he's just dressed up as Santa and ruining Santa for them. And so it turns out all the kids in this little circle hate Santa because it's been ruined for him. Yeah, at first you're like, why are all these kids scared of Santa? Like all these kids randomly are phobic of Santa, like how kids hate clowns. And then you realize it's because the Santa they know is this horrible mob boss who's drunken and like he threatens them and uses the Santa role to try and get information because he's paranoid. Yeah. So he'll be like, yeah. not, are your parents being naughty? Have they said anything about the business? You know, only good kids who tell Santa the truth about, like, you got a rat on your parents to get the toys. Uh, so it's just a horrible experience for everyone. The, the company Christmas party is a nightmare. Everyone dreads it. Yeah, and then they uh, they 
finally, the parents finally stand up to him at this one party. Just because the kids let shit slip. Yeah. One of the kids by accident, he gets a toy train and he's like, am, am I allowed to wipe it off? And Santa's like, why would you wipe it off? And he's like, well, mom says you're dirty and dad says everything you touch is covered in blood. I don't want dirt and blood on my train. <laughs> and uh, that, then the cat's out of the bag. Yeah. So Santa that. starts yelling at them all like, you'd be nothing without me. And they, then the parents get upset enough to stand up for themselves. And doesn't and Bernie punch him in the nose? <laughs> yeah, he hits him, and uh, then it's clear uh, all of these parents will die for this transgression. Yeah, and he's really Al Capone. He's not fucking around. He says, yeah. okay, you've made your choice. Like, I'm going to Gus Fring you now. Like, people right. will be coming to kill you. <laughs> Goodbye. Everyone get the fuck out of my house. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, and then before, right before that, he's like, oh, also there's a present from this Italian group. Why don't I open it up? And then it blows up Nick's face in front of everyone. Well, so all the kids watch him get his face blown up. Well, it's great because he's bragging. He's like, I don't need your gifts. You shitty. I have rich people all over the world who love me. <laughs> the Shah of Iran here sent me this shit. Oh, yeah. some, something from Italy, the homeland. They sent me and it blows his head off. <laughs> and the card says like from the family. So it's clearly from a rival mob. Yeah. Uh, and that's just the end. It's a it's a Christmas miracle that saves all everyone from getting killed. <laughs> yeah. And I kind of love this one. It's, it's re- one of the best ones. It's really, it's really messed up in a good way. It's just entertaining and good. Yeah. It's the best joke in the book for sure with more and more of these I'm realizing like yeah a magazine for nice middle class people printed this in 1954 awesome yeah. cool good job the past next unpaid consultant um, another story I find highly problematic because it's the classic structure of these stories in this book of someone feeling inferior and creating an elaborate delusion to try and not feel inferior. Basically, there's this guy who's perfectly happy with his wife. Then she becomes a famous actress. And then he becomes a consultant for the ketchup industry and spends all his time steamrolling anything his wife has to say because he's so obsessed with the big, important, sweeping changes he's going to make to the ketchup industry. He spends all his time reading (laughs) ketchup-related publications and studying ketchup (laughs) business, fixotropy, the act of making ketchup more or less viscous in the bottle and all this like the cutting edge ketchup shit (laughs) then through some like social shenanigans it gets revealed that he is not in the ketchup industry because they meet someone who really is and they're like I never heard of you and he's like they call me Mr. Ketchup and he's like really because they call me Mr. Ketchup and I'm the chair of the National Ketchup Consortium (laughs) and I've never heard of you I'm from I'm from Ithaca or was it Utica anyway and basically the guy just admits to his uh, you're right I said Rochester and it's Utica Simpsons quote fail um (laughs) But basically, he reveals, you're right, you got me. I just needed something to make me feel important because my wife is above me now, and I can't have that. I felt like such a small man because my wife is succeeding in life, which, of course, is highly problematic. That I had to, and the solution is he switches from ketchup to birdseed. Now he's just going to study birdseed. But the fact that he steamrolls his wife and never lets her finish a sentence is never addressed. Yeah, you're or just, just as, concerned with like how this guy finds peace with being the man of the house and yet not being the breadwinner. Who the fuck cares? It's not a deal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just just gross relationship stuff underlying the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, and fifties standards of like if you're a man and you're not the main breadwinner, you should feel bad. And I don't think we feel that way anymore. I certainly don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story is not amazing in some way that justifies yeah. it either. Next story is Der Arme Dolmetscher, which is a. In, which I, it was so short it's almost not a story 
It's about it's a joke. It's basically a yeah. joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very brief vignette from the end of World War II. The title means the army translator, and it's a soldier who knows a little bit of opera German, gets overheard saying it, so then he gets made a German translator. He's struggling with a pamphlet of military questions that you would ask in German to the Germans if you needed to. And then the payoff is the guy he's dealing with is a German guy struggling with an English version of the same pamphlet. And so he's able to play off his mistaken self-promotion in the force. That's all. Yeah. Yep. Next, the boy who hated girls. Yeah, this and is this an... is, uh, along with Powder Blue Dragon and Hallerwin's Magic Lamp, this is the other one that Vonnegut rewrote for the book. The Boy Who Hated Girls, autobiographical. It's about Kurt's feelings on women. Uh, no. It's a George M. Helmholtz mystery. Ooh. And in this one, it's... I'm not going to go through all the ups and downs, but basically he has a rocky relationship with one of the kids in the band. It's always a kid in the band isn't playing well anymore, and he has to figure out why. This time, the kid's marching is off, and he seems to weave. He faints and passes out easily. Yeah. Um, he can't keep in formation. And uh, Helmholtz is like... To does this have something to do with that girl I've been seeing you with? And he's like, no, I don't even really like that girl. And he's like, oh, okay, because I see you walk home with her every day. And he's like, yeah, but I don't like her. I like you. It really means a lot that you've spent this time with me training. I'm sorry I can't be better. And I was like really upset. And Helmholtz is trying to get to the bottom of it. He eventually finds out that the kid is drunk all the time, and that's why he's not doing well. And then when he gets, when he's trying to get to the bottom of that, he's like, why is this kid so upset? Why is he drinking heavily? Yeah. One of his friends goes like, hey, you idiot. And again, explains to him how human feelings work. And he's like, of your hundred kids that you lead, you pick five kids every year to have intensive one-on-one sessions with and like take under your wing. Then you cut them loose after six weeks. This kid doesn't have a dad and like is super poor. And you took him under your wing and gave him a father figure for six weeks. Everyone who sees you two together can tell he thinks of you like his father. And he's like, as well he should. That's uh, fine. I'm his teacher. And they're like, no, you don't get it. Now you're telling him he's not allowed to see you anymore and a different kid is your new son and he's like oh it's fucked up oh that sucks (laughs) and then he's and then the kid comes back says i want to quit the band gives him his trumpet or whatever and says keep it and he's like why did you pretend you liked the band when you didn't he's like because i thought you wanted me to like the band and he's like well why did you pretend not to like that girl that you know you now say you're in love with and he's like because she used to say bad shit about you like that you don't care about me and that you'll never give me back the love that i give you now i realize she was right and i like her and hate you goodbye and he leaves and the ending is Helmholtz basically just saying oh I need to do soul searching and better myself yeah he really he just calls up a friend and goes like and he's like, what's the trouble, George? And he's like, me, I did something bad. I need to talk about it. And that's the end. Well, he the, Specifically, it's the school nurse he goes to at the end. Oh, he goes sure. okay. like for help as a faculty member, even though she's only been helping students the whole time. And she was the one who started him down this journey of realizing. Yeah. She's like, don't you get it? He's drunk, dude. And that's how he ended up figuring everything out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and this one's really weird and dark to me and, and was like hard to handle. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like an Encyclopedia Brown story where he fails to solve the <laughs> crime and it's a murder and he's just guilty about not solving it at the end yeah Yeah. and there's also (laughs) he's like maybe i should stop being a detective i'm I'm only 11 (laughs) jesus right like it turns out he he killed everyone or something just pounding chocolate milks trying to forget (laughs) when it also randomly because the kid's name is bert 
Higgins. The girl he's been seeing is named Charlotte. And there's a part sort of randomly where they mention that Charlotte has been egging Bird on to feel bad about this. They also just sort of offhand mention that she's been dating a lot of people in the band (laughs) after this situation happens to them, which is a really weird universe element to have of like this this serial dating 16-year-old of like broken band boys. It's crazy. Yeah, don't look too closely at the female characters. They are given short shrift. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Next. Um, Next story is called This Son of Mine, and it's a it's a story about a centrifugal pump factory. Everybody's favorite kind of factory. Next. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's two pairs of fathers and sons. Merle Wagoner is the owner and his son Franklin doesn't want to run the factory for him. And then Merle's first employee is a guy named Rudy Lindbergh, who's like the top machinist at the factory. And then his son Carl is the new top machinist and they're like super, super in sync. Merlin feels weird about he and Franklin not being that in sync, you know? And then they go back and forth, they get in a fight. Franklin kind of just doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. It's not that he hates the factory or loves something else. He just doesn't know what to do. He ends up getting pressured into promising to run the factory. And then they go out for a celebratory hunt with the pairs of fathers and sons. And Franklin, who's promised to take over the factory to make his dad happy, finds out from Carl, the other son who seems very happy imitating his father, that Carl hates it and has had to imitate his father to make his own father happy for his whole life. And it's all this like nesting guilt and father-son issues thing. Because his father had a chance to be a part owner of the factory, but he didn't want to invest the seed money at the time. Yeah. And now, in order to not feel utterly worthless in front of his friend and now boss, Merle, yeah. he pretends that it's the greatest decision he ever made. He's a simple man who likes working with his hands and loves his son, and his son is his real treasure, and he wouldn't want to own half the factory. Secretly, he goes home and tells his son, you need to act like the perfect son so that this guy will hopefully will you some of the money yeah. after he dies. Because the way it stands now, his snot-nosed son who doesn't even want the factory is going to get it all. And I deserve some of that. <laughs> so everyone thinks everyone's happy, but everyone's unhappy. It ends with him saying that the moral is that fathers and sons are one, which I don't necessarily agree yeah. concludes from that. Yeah, it isn't totally it. Yeah. To me, the moral is just the grass is always greener. Right. Yeah. Right, right. It's a classic. Yeah. At the yeah, end, you just find out. Very oh, gifted the Magi. Yeah. Like everybody's making themselves unhappy to try to make people happy. It's geometrically nicely planned. That dad screwed that dad. So his son tries to please that dad. So his son tries to please that dad. And the sons don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> Next, it's a story called A Night for Love. And this is another like geometric kind of thing. It's two couples this time. There's Turley Whitman and his wife Millie. Turley's like a regular security guard kind of guy. Louis C. Rhinebeck owns the place that Turley is a security guard at and has a wife Natalie. And like at one point Louis and Millie went on one date one time. 20 years ago. Yeah. And we were on a break! <laughs> Basically. Turley! Yeah. And, uh, Turley. <laughs> and then both couples each have a child and the children are on a date together. Uh, which is like, uh, oh, the rich and the poor together thing. Crazy. And the two couples get into a bunch of recriminations about the old date that the members of the couples had been on as they wait for their children to like come back, hopefully safely from this date. They both separately have fights, and the fights are about the idea of regretting things that didn't happen, or again, thinking the grass is always greener and not being able to be happy with the relationship you have. Yeah. Then they, like both couples separately, have that fight, reach resolution, 
solution, make up, love each other more than ever, and then finally figure out where their kids are, which is they were gone so long because they were getting married. Right, right. So everyone's happy. It's a triple wedding. <laughs> and yeah, it's like a really sweet comedy. It feels very, oh, oh, I was just going to say the other through line is when they went on their date 20 years ago, it was a full moon. Yeah. And tonight it's a full moon and there's all this shit about how like apparently the full moon just makes you forcibly fall in love. And I guess that's why the kids got married. Is it yeah. implied? <laughs> it, well, yeah, because it's a kind of thing where Lewis and Millie, who are the adults in separate relationships who went on a date in the past, they realize like, oh, it was just such a beautiful night. We had a nice date because like the stage was set. It just felt like it completed this nice night for us to have a nice time. Right. But we didn't actually love each other or anything. We don't like miss each other. And that aching idea that your life would be way better if you made that decision is an illusion. You don't know what your life would be totally different. Right. Yeah. It's just get over it and be happy with what's in front of you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it ends with the kids having that same night to complete and running with it and getting married. Yeah. And that's it. Also, just to jump back before, I just wanted to say at the end of The Son of Mine, one thing I did notice that I thought was cool is, and kind of heartbreaking, Carl, on their walk back from placing the targets in the hunt is so upset that he says, well, fuck him. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to pretend to be good at everything. I'm going to miss this shot on purpose. He's never missed a shot at any of their hunts ever in his whole life. And then they get back and he takes his shot and it hits dead center. Yeah. Like that's a, and that's one of the last things that's in the story. Cool. That like he was just venting to his friend in a private moment and then he is still going to do what his dad wants. <laughs> yeah. Roof. Screwed up in a good way. Yeah. From a writing perspective. Ooh, speaking of screwed up in a terrible way, find me a dream. <laughs> Next. The story of this is literally the story of the widow of a physically abusive heroin addict. And and great leaving, jazz musician. Leaving her current fiance for a guy she meets tonight on a golf course while very drunk. So let's get this right. She's married to a dude. He did heroin and beat her. Then he died. She married another dude. He really likes her and it's nice to her. He's like, they're fianced. They're, they're like, affianced. Yeah, yeah. She gets bored of him because he works in the sewer pipe industry and all they talk about is sewer pipes. So she gets drunk, walks out to the golf course, meets a guy and proposes marriage to him. That's the story. Yep. To me, man or woman, you could flip the genders. It doesn't. It's just the story of a lunatic. It's just the story of a crazy person. <laughs> Well, or like yeah. someone's so traumatized by their horrible marriage that they're just like flailing for help and no one will help them. Which I, that's why I think it's problematic because it is, again, it's presented as cute. It's presented as cute that they're going to marry even though they just met tonight. And the guy's really funny and witty, but that doesn't mean they should fucking get married after she just got out of an abusive marriage. <laughs> like, it's nuts to me yeah. that he tries to pass it off as a cute love story. It's very abrupt too. Like there's a story in Welcome to the Monkey House called Long Walk to Forever where it's just abrupt and pushy and then they're in love and then you love me now and and the narrator's like so she fell in love with him what could she do (laughs) (laughs) and and this one's like that plus a Charlie Parker type figure but way worse and it's really weird yeah (laughs) next next story is called Runaways and this is a story it's I guess sort of like a night for love with like oh different classes of teens falling in love this is the one where one of the 
teen's first name is Rice. Yeah, yeah. Don't name your kids Rice, people. <laughs> His name's Rice Brentner, and he's supposed to be a poor kid, yeah. you know? Crazy. And then the rich family is Indiana Governor Jesse K. Southard and his wife Mary and daughter Annie. Annie and Rice have run off to elope and then get caught and brought back, and then they'll get run, try to run off and get brought back a couple times, and it's because they think they're like deeply in love, but they're really just, they really just like the idea of it. They're just teenagers in the rebellious phase. It's yeah. The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah they yeah. run over, over, and over, and whenever they get caught, they get pressed because she's the governor's daughter. They lecture about how society's fucked, and teens are better than adults, and teens understand true loves, and parents just don't understand. <laughs> At one point, they actually blast parents just don't understand on a boombox. Not true. <laughs> no, they don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the punchline is as soon as the parents use reverse psychology and you're like, fine, get married if you want. We're done worrying about this. They're like, ooh. Oh, now it's boring. Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. Like, marriage? Big step. <laughs> and they break up immediately. <laughs> yeah. Next is a story called To Be Our Not To Be. It's spelled out in numbers and letters. To Be Our Zero To Be. And it's probably the story that feels the best known out of all of these, just because they're in God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, a Kilgore Trout short story that's a different story with the same title. It's also dark as hell. It's super sci-fi, and it paints a picture of the impossible mess of trying to ever make the world better, Yeah, which are like, now you're vonneguting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now yeah, you're really, thinking in portals. Yeah, and this one, it, yeah, as we get like later in the book, it's like, oh, yeah, like the spooky sci-fi stuff, because this was published in this magazine, Worlds of If, which is a sci-fi thing, in 1962. So we get 10 years past a lot of the early part of the book, and it's much more uh, what we think. That is a terrible name for a sci-fi yeah, video. I'm sorry. Awful. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's still in print. Yeah, yeah. it's probably... <laughs> Their sister magazine. The galaxy of, hey, I wonder. <laughs> what if? <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want that photoshopped please someone yeah. and yeah everything michael said about it it well it's a story about it's a population controlled earth and they feel that by building what's called the federal bureau of termination they've created a better world by managing the thing that in a lot of his essays and writings and especially later in violent career he says is going to end the world like just the population is going to explode and we're going to mismanage our resources and then everyone dies so this is a story where they solved it with population control and the deal is if you have children you need to find volunteers to die to cover it. And there's characters. Everyone's immortal also because it's sci-fi, distant future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So someone has to volunteer to die. You can't wait for someone to die. Yeah. And there's a doctor named Benjamin Hitz. And that's the same name as a friend of Vonnegut's in real life. Benjamin Hitz is like this hundreds of years old Superman because he invented all this stuff and is very happy about it. And then a character named Edward K. Welling Jr., who is a father expecting triplets. So, oh no, three people have to die. What are we going to do? And then there's also an unnamed painter painting a mural in this hospital uh like clearly kurt vonnegut yeah (laughs) i would say because he doesn't like the mural the mural represents the mural is a mural of a perfectly ordered garden with the workers who kill people walking around gardening the symbol being right we make the world perfectly ordered by doing this yeah And and the painter who's forced to paint it doesn't like the mural so i just love that he is vonnegut himself writing a story about a society he doesn't even like to look at right right 
and and it ends brutally because yeah that's the way of it the father edward k welling jr ends up murdering dr hits and the nurse and then killing himself to create three spots for his babies so none of the babies have to die and then the painter who's secretly vonnegut sees all this and immediately calls the bureau of termination to schedule his own suicide yeah and although i do story. like his thought process because <laughs> i think it's very vonnegut and true is he thinks about obviously how horrible this system is and how immoral and it makes him feel evil and dirty and like the, he shouldn't be in this world then he also thinks about for a second which i think is just very insightful what would be a better system and he can't think of one he's like yeah. it seems so inhumane to try and get people to euthanize themselves but the other option really is to thin the herd quote unquote naturally through starvation war and plague that's the only other way population reaches a ceiling and then gets controlled yeah so it's like you either have to have all the evils of the world that we already are aware of or you have to have forced euthanasia there's just no good option so he kills himself <laughs> yeah yeah i'm like damn that is a harsh but true insight that like there's no easy solution to how many of us there are on the earth yeah it's and it's an extremely fascinating conclusion to find if you're especially if you're vonnegut and you've written all this stuff about uh, the the world's gonna end and then yeah. to explore a way that fixes it that he still wouldn't want to like live the cost in. isn't worth it in yeah. my mind yeah yeah i think i think this is the strongest story to me in the whole thing it also it felt like the title story of welcome to the monkey house in a lot of ways because that has the suicide parlors and and mm-hmm. people grappling with whether that's a good idea and to be or are not to be is like that minus all the rape and all the crazy terrible things in Welcome to the Monkey House. And yet it's always true that they're next to Howard Johnson's for some reason. He (laughs) maintains that in any story where there's euthanasia centers they're next to Howard Johnson's. Next story is called Lovers Anonymous and it's one uh, with a town and we got a storm window salesman taking us around it showing us the whole place and there was a lady in the town named sheila hinckley who all the men in the town were pining after yeah, and high then, school or whatever yeah. yeah and then they figured well she when she's back from college we will marry her and then she married a guy in college oh she's a jerk you know not really and then uh from there they form a group called lovers anonymous where they have like an AA type group for themselves. And it's kind of a joke, but kind of not about getting over this woman that they all wanted. And dedicated to the proposition that the guy that got her, oh, he better treat her right. Oh, I hope she's getting everything. I would have given her a yacht. But it becomes kind of an in-joke. Yeah. I think it's creepy. They keep swearing that they're not creepy because it's just an in-joke, but I, I would think it was creepy if I was the lady. Well, they, 20 years later, if you're making in-jokes about how you all wish you had married me in high school. Yeah, because they say explicitly that when they see her in town, they all like jokingly oh. make eyes at her and like, Ugh. And, and she's she like, eh. she like show off a sexy gam. And I'm like, she probably really feels that up. she has to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that social pressure when eight yeah. men corner you and whistle at you and, and go, then, it's just a joke. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, it gets way worse uh, because there's a feminist book going around the town that uh, the woman Sheila and uh, also her husband Herb read. And then it convinces both of them that the marriage doesn't work for them and that they're holding each other back. They live separately, never deal with each in other again. In a duplex, again. still together, yeah. but with a wall in between. And I think to, what's his name, Herb? Herb. Herb's credit, he, reading the book himself, he agrees. He's like, yeah. oh, you're right. Our society is fucked. And just because I was playing my traditional role and didn't think twice about it, she's coming to me and saying, you know, I've just been a housewife and I used to think that was fine. Now I have this great void that I feel like I didn't, do anything even though i wanted to do some things and he to his credit is like 
oh shit, you're right. And he feels so guilty. He kicks himself out of the house. He's like, you deserve your own house and your own career, you know? Yeah. Space to do what you want to do. So it's this interesting thing where the townspeople think the marriage is falling apart, but it's actually getting much better and more equitable. Yeah, yeah. Well, she herself says, she says, yeah. you've seen me crying a lot. But it's I'm crying for things that I realize I gave up and with joy for the having the freedom to pursue them now. Yeah. I'm not crying because I'm not in love with Herb anymore. Yeah, I think like they're fine. And I feel like Vonnegut still puts a negative value judgment on feminism and on, on the book that splits oh, them up. I didn't I read think it so. Way. I yeah. thought the main character did and Vonnegut judged them to be wrong, but I will never know. Yeah, but like, I guess so. The yeah. main character, yes. The main character who is narrating reads the feminist book and is like, Oh boy, get this hot potato out of here. This is like female brain poison. Yeah. Any lady who reads this is going to be doing bad shit, like wanting things. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like he's very traditional about it and thinks the book is just stirring up trouble. And it gets worse because the punchline of the story is that he's like, and I gave it to my wife. And his friends are like, you let your wife read it? And he was like, yeah. And as a bookmark, I, ha- I had her use her old school report card. He's like, that way she can safely read this inspiring thing, but still know that she's too dumb to right. ever try anything. So yeah. I'm safe. Whew. Hilarious <laughs> end of story. Yeah. And from that, I took Vonnegut to be a jerk like, in yeah, this case. <laughs> I'm going to continuously engender uh, self-loathing and like in my wife so that she'll stay compliant. Yeah, it's really screwed up. You know, your average storm window salesman. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they do. They hate feminist tracts. I guess I just feel like Vonnegut would not have included the central couple if he thought that way. That's like, why true. would yeah, that even true. be the action of the story, you know? Yeah, that, that, that is, yeah, there is something there, yeah. Yeah, like, why have them? Yeah. Next and last uh, story. And of the certainly book. least. Yeah. <laughs> I Hal, hated it. <laughs> and this is, it's called Hal Irwin's Magic Lamp, and it bears repeating, Vonnegut rewrote this story mm-hmm. to include it in the modern day. So, like, late 90s Vonnegut rewrote this, signed off, and put it in the book. Ouch. Yep. Yep. Uh, it involves a lot of English. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, the main—that's another thing. But it's I didn't. Great. I didn't include his lines in my Vana What the main character in Halloran's Magic Lamp is racist and imperialist. Yeah. And by the end, is shown by the author to be that. Yeah. So I don't think, like, when he says. Me not that rich, but me doing very good for China man. And you're like, oh my fucking yeah, god! Kurt I almost Vonnegut. threw the book. Was, oh, I man. really do think that's a situation <laughs> where Vonnegut knows how bad that is, and yeah. that guy is bad. So I didn't include it in Vonnegut, but the guy is so awful that the feel the whole story gives you crawlies. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I felt like the rest of the story wasn't strong enough to justify it, even maybe not being yeah, printed. Certainly, like, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Django Unchained's super good. I still don't know if it justifies Quentin dropping that many N-bombs. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's quite a difficult equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, so Hal and Mary Irwin. Mary is super doting wife who doesn't mind that they're dirt poor. Hal secretly isn't dirt poor. He's just been managing the family's finances totally without his wife's knowledge or consent. <laughs> which he thinks will be really cute and fun because one day yeah. he's going to surprise her and be like, Bitch, you didn't know it. We're rich. <laughs> like, here's In our mansion. Yeah. Here's our car. <laughs> here's our servants. You didn't know it, but I'm rich. Here, yeah. I give you the perfect life. And he thought a fun way to do it would be to build a magic lamp that looks like Aladdin's magic lamp that when you rub, a little light comes on. And he would pay a black American servant 
to portray a genie. And it explicitly says, and this is how I know Vonnegut knows this guy's brain is fucked up. It explicitly says he wanted a black woman because black men frightened him. Oh, and yeah, I'm that's like, true. Yeah, That's a card tip. Like you That's true. I feel like Vonnegut's saying this guy is a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so he gets this uh, really poor pregnant woman to come over and wear a turban and wait on them while she's like eight months pregnant. And her job is for him to be like, I wish for a car. And her to be like, yes, master, there is a car outside. Yeah. Yeah, and pretend to be the genie. Well, she arrives an hour early and is talking with his wife for a while. And the wife is genuinely nice and likes her, is interested in her pregnancy and how it's going to work out, concerned for her. They feel like budding friendship's starting. Then the husband gets home and starts ordering around and rubbing a lamp. And the wife is, like, humiliated. Yeah. Like, she keeps turning to Ella Rice, who's the other lady, and going, like, you don't have to do this. I'm so sorry. And Ella Rice... Of course, because she's in a rock and a hard place. Is like, but he's paying me. I have to feed my kid. Please stop ruining my gig. And she's like, we'll pay you anyway. Just stop. This is like breaking my heart that you're being humiliated in this way. Yeah. And Hal's like, why aren't you grateful? I thought I was doing this amazing, hilarious thing. People don't think this is great. Yeah. And uh, basically, in a few paragraphs at the end, they just describe the rest of their lives, which don't go well. Yeah, he dies in the stock market crash. He, uh, yeah, he says he, he jumped out himself. of a, jumped out of a building without a parachute, as many people around the country were doing. Interesting side note: uh, that's been famously debunked. Yeah, During that been, period, yeah. only two businessmen killed themselves by jumping out of buildings. Yeah, yeah. But he took no, that really trope. He took yeah. that trope, and he says, "Yeah, so that's what happens to Hal. He loses all his money. He jumps out a window." Mary and Ella live together for a while as friends. Then Mary herself is too poor to. Uh, not go home. So she ends up going home and living with her dad. It just like at a dirt farm in the dust bowl. And she, at the end of her long journey, um, she asks Mary, what's going to happen to you and your baby? And Mary's like, actually, we have plenty of places to go. And there's a lot of people who said they'd help us. And she asks her dad, what is your take on this whole situation? And he says, well, the poor help the poor. Like he just points out, which is statistically provable. The poorer you are, the higher percentage of your income you're willing to give to other poor people because you get it. And the richer you are, the more you tend to just give an amount that makes you feel like you did your civic duty or whatever. You know, you check that box this year. You're a good guy. Right. Um, But the poor (laughs) know that the poor are suffering, and so the poor really help each other. And that that is uh, the last short story in it. And then uh, let's do a, a very small segment called Coda Time. Such a tiny Coda segment, time. you won't even know it's here and Coda it's gone. Time. This is because he rounds off the whole collection with a piece written in the modern day called Coda to My Career as a Writer for Periodicals. And uh, he talks about the three stories he rewrote and calls them fake fossils like the Piltdown Man, because it's not actually an artifact of when he was a younger writer. And um, talks about his writing for magazines as a literary apprenticeship and talks about whether or not it's still worth writing short stories. And he says that art is for growing your soul, not for making money. So it's what it is. And there you go. Then he says that exact phrase again four pages later. Yep. He repeats himself too much, man. <laughs> you got to leave him wanting more. And then he wraps it up by uh, saying that he now only writes for magazines when it's nonfiction and when they ask him to and when he feels like it. And he says, here's this free thing I wrote for an alt-weekly in Indianapolis about Midwesterners and how great they are. 
And because I'm very self-centered, I loved it. Oh, yeah. You're glowing right now. <laughs> you look so pleased. So great. <laughs> we're the best. We're, yeah. we're the chosen tribe. It's where, it's where the concept of Midwesterners being freshwater people freshwater comes from. People. It's one of my favorite Vonnegut things ever. So this, this really begins and ends with some stuff that blows me away. Yeah. Where he's like, yeah. to be a native Midwesterner, you have to be born in a most peculiar circumstance, which is to be surrounded by millions of gallons of fresh water and no salt water whatsoever. I'm like, that is unique. I don't know that it imparts anything onto the child, but it's unique <laughs> geographically. <laughs> you got yeah, those yeah. great lakes up there. Sure. <laughs> and, he al- and he also argues that he's like, people say Midwesterners are too stoked about our own Midwesternness. That's true. But also look at people from Texas and Brooklyn. They're even <laughs> more into their of thing. Course, and yeah. they're crazy. <laughs> Hometown love. And uh, why don't we look back through the collection with a segment called Kurt Blurts. Oh my God, Becky, look at at her her (laughs) blurts. Well done, well done. Sir (laughs) Mixavon. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's look at some, there there are, I think, less choice lines in this than most of his other books to me, but there's a few. I got four. Oh, here we go. How many you got? I got, I haven't counted them. I just have them in my notes. Okay. Uh, but there's not a lot more than that. And I bet boggle rules. Like, I bet you're going to say oh. some of the ones I have in mind, and I'll probably only have one or yeah. something. Let's, ju- let's just go back and forth, see where we go. Sure. Get. Love laughs at locksmiths. Oh, yeah. Nice alliteration. That's the um, lady at the end of the one where she reads the feminist book telling uh, the guy's like, but how, so you do love your husband? Oh. We all thought you guys were falling apart because he moved out. You've been crying. She's like, no, we love each other. We're just going to go back to dating to bring like a freshness and give me space to thrive as my own individual. And he's like, well, how are you going to fuck? <laughs> Not those words, but yeah. he does, which I think is incredibly forward for a Vonnegut character. The yeah. window salesman is like, well, how are you going to make love still? And she <laughs> says, love laughs at locksmiths, which is a good bit of alliteration off the top yeah, of the head. This is him in the intro when he's talking about how important Alice was to him. He says, the boundaries to the playing fields of my short stories and my novels too were once the boundaries of the soul of my only sister. She lives on that way. Amen. And then into the thing. I don't know. I just really it's like really the way good. I have, can't respond. Off. It's yeah. too sacred. <laughs> Not going to make a joke about that. Yeah. Uh, hell is other people, said Jean-Paul Sartre. Hell is other real people is what he should have said, um, which I think is really interesting if you unpack the greater point in that section. He's talking about how, in his perception, TV gave people all these fake friends they can have that feel yeah. like an extended family. And they're f- like literally a show called Friends, where people are just your surrogate <laughs> friends. And uh, his point being that he thinks that somehow deadens actual social connection And, of course, I just think it's interesting because someone who lived before books could have said that about books because books are full of fake people. Um, And and I now, as I age and calcify into, like, what I like, I feel that way about things like Twitch streaming where I'm like, (laughs) you're watching a stranger play a video game? Get a friend and play video games with them, you fucking nerd. (laughs) Um, You can check me out on Twitch, Swaim underscore Corp. but, (laughs) But I would never watch one. I will make them. I would never watch one. Alex. Right, right. That's the difference. I un- I understand fully. I just like the way you plugged it. We're like, well, we're in this we're in this business. I'll make whatever the kids want, but I don't get it. Um, yeah. So that's that one. Yeah. No, that's a really good. One. This uh, maybe this one kind of fits. This is from the story Thanosphere, 
and it's um, Grosinger musing on what this Thanosphere all means, and he says, maybe that was the spirit of this era of the atomic bomb, H-bomb, God knows what next bomb, to be amazed at nothing. I, I think I like that idea, of because I, I think that is particularly true now when there's a billion things to keep track of. Mm-hmm. Like, there's amazing space news happening all of the time. And yeah. nobody cares because there's just everything happening all the time. Can't keep Check up. out those Cassini probe shots. Cassini Yo, probe just yeah. died, sent its final shots of Saturn. They're beautiful. Seconded, yeah. yeah. It's great. This is the bit where I don't have any meaning to unpack from it. It's just a description. But it's the only time in the book where I was like, now you Vonnegut. <laughs> and as I said, it's from the brutal uh, war one Yeah. called what? Where he gets is the it souvenir? watch. Souvenir. Souvenir, yeah. yeah. Quote, Eddie and Buzzer and the old man and the blonde found themselves behind the wall where the blonde had said the Americans could swap their uniforms for the watch and civilian clothes. In the uproar, during which anybody could do anything and nobody cared what anybody did, the blonde shot Buzzer in the head. That's a very curt way of depicting brutality. And it was just nice to see him shining through there. This uh, this blurt, this is from A Present for Big St. Nick. And I felt like it was very, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater or something like that. I was like, oh, there's, there's him doing his mm. thing. And it's after Bernard O'Hare, which is another, also a character named after a friend of Vonnegut. Uh, Bernie O'Hare, the enforcer, punches out Nick. And all the kids are very excited, and uh, Vonnegut narrates, They were too innocent to realize that nothing had changed in the economic structure in which their parents were still embedded. In so many movies they'd seen, one punch to the face of a bad guy by a good guy turned hell into an earthly paradise. Yeah. The kids think everything's fine because dad punched Santa, but Santa's going to have them all killed. Right. They're they're going to die soon. Fun note for if you are reading this one along with us or plan to read it. I I was delighted reading that story because I cast Bill Burr as Bernie O'Hare in my head. Oh, oh, that's great. I highly recommend imagining Bill Burr as Bernie O'Hare in that. That's super fun. (laughs) Um, My last one, which is my favorite one, is he likens short stories to, quote, a bunch of Buddhist cat naps. Yeah. And I've never been on board with his conflating meditation and reading. Till now, this one sold me. Oh. I'm like, oh, you packaged it in a way that I'm like, yeah, I agree. Okay. <laughs> there is something nice and meditative about reading a short story. Yeah, there is. And I love I love short stories. I love it as a medium. I have a special fondness for it as a dead medium, basically. So thinking that they're special is cute. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. They're like little meditative journeys. <laughs> well, yeah, it makes it very exciting to sit down with one. Like, it, it, if you just th- yeah. think of it, I'm going to read a short story. It's like, okay, sure. But if I'm going to take a Buddhist cat nap. Or yeah, as he describes exciting. it in the intro, then I would share that story with my dad, have him sit in the chair, still warm from my teenage butt. That's, <laughs> that's an odd phrasing. <laughs> I also loved in the... He also does the... He does the that's what she said. Like, he's not aware of some of the entendres he throws out. In the sewer oh, pipe really? story, did you notice? Like, I'm sure oh, they're not intentional, like... but the guy's like, my name's Mr. Pipe. Well, don't you think your wife's sick of talking about pipes? No, she's very interested in pipe. It's like, <laughs> do you not get what you're doing, Vonnegut? Phrasing. Phrasing. Yeah, yeah he has a lot of phrasing moments. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I think I just, I have uh, two more from this, just celebrating the Midwest thing. Do it. <laughs> so I'll do it back to back. One is... Human beings come into this world for their own good as instinctively territorial as timber wolves or honeybees. It's not yeah. even Midwest specific. It's just great. And then as when he rounds off the whole thing, uh, he says, what geography can give all Middle Westerners, along with the fresh water and topsoil, if they let it, is awe for a fertile continent stretching forever in all directions. Makes you religious, takes your breath away. 
Illinois. Illinois. <laughs> Lock it up. Lock it up. <laughs> just the governors. Just the governors. No, they part can, yeah. three. Snake Pliskin in. Escape from Illinois. <laughs> in the future, Illinois is a death land. <laughs> I'd love to see just like, yeah, Snake well, hang gliding in and people are like, oh, how are you, Snake? <laughs> There's We're going to shoot at you now. It's not the accent. <laughs> We're from Illinois, don't you know? Well, also, by way of Minnesota. <laughs> I like I like that the supernatural third movie, or the very, very natural third movie would be Escape from Chicago, but instead it's Escape from Illinois, oh, so he's like in state, fields yeah. and stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's That's why exciting. you can't escape. It's big. It's mostly <laughs> empty space. Hard to get out. <laughs> his greatest weakness is not having like a reliable car and yeah. just a map of the interstates yeah <laughs> oh man well uh speaking of fun characters let's sure. do a segment called recurring characters update and we'll have fun 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 with the characters, characters and their and updates they're back. As we talked about, George Elm Helmholtz is in a bunch of these. No Talent Kid, Ambitious Sophomore, The Boy Who Hated Girls. He's also in one short story in Welcome to the Monkey House called The Kid Nobody Could Handle. And then he is very differently in The Sirens of Titan. He is one of the aliases for the Martian spies who <laughs> capture our main character. And it's a lot of fun. There's also, like we said, a lot of storm windows and doors salesmen. We can probably do a sub-segment of Kirk Cameo. Kirk Cameo. Kirk Cameo. <laughs> because, uh, like you said, Michael, I, it totally makes sense that Kurt's stand-in, when he is has a stand-in in the stories, is a nameless financial advisor, storm window and doors salesman, who is just showing us the characters and having thoughts about them. Um and yeah, there's only a few more. Uh, Bernie O'Hare, a boxer in a present for Big St. Nick. That's the real name of a friend. Nicknamed the Shenandoah Blaster. That will come up later. <laughs> will it? Yeah, from me. In oh. my recommended reading, yeah. Oh, cool. Cool, cool. Uh, <laughs> I, I was like, he has a bunch of Shenandoah Blasters in all his yeah. books. Yeah. There's also a doctor named Benjamin Hitz in To Be Our Not To Be. That name matches uh, one of Vonnegut's close friends. And then in real life named Ben Hitz. The last name Pefko is in The Cruise of the Jolly Roger short story. And that last name will come up with Francine Pefko, who's very different characters in Cat's Cradle and Breakfast of Champions. There's also a Julian Pefko in Dead Eye Dick. And then lastly, there's the General Forge and Foundry Company. As we said, that's a stand-in for General Electric. It's in two stories here, uh, The Son of Mine and Find Me a Dream. And then it's in the novels Cat's Cradle and Slaughterhouse-Five. So it's a lot of like uh, basic things that he's pulling. He said in a past letter of his that he reuses names that he enjoys uh, sort of randomly throughout his writing, because why not? Let's go into another segment from here called Vana What? We. Vana. <laughs> I, just, I was looking up the thing I'm going to talk about in recommended reading. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Vana What? Wow. Vana What? Wow. Vana What? Oost, oost, Vana What? <laughs> We're bringing that beat back. I like wow. it. Vanawad is where we look at uh, maybe offensiveness or hokiness or other other issues in the book. I like I had a lot of trouble with uh, the patness of some of the story endings. I was like almost more bugged by that a lot of the time than like offensiveness within the stories. Um, I think we've talked about many of the offensive things along the way too. And they're the standards if you've been following along with the podcast. He describes all the men by their characteristics. He describes all the women as either attractive or unattractive. It's like their only attributes. 
Um, <laughs> and I'm not. You keep, we're not going to pick out every little single thing. Yeah, there but, is um, one. There's a recurring mm-hmm. one uh, in Custom Made Bride when he's talking about Kitty slash Falaline and how she's been redone. He Vonnegut in describing her says that her earring is a barbaric gold hoop, and he's done that repeatedly with like sexy woman characters, giving them a large gold hoop earring and calling that barbaric. He it's really also weird. says she was an irresponsibly affectionate woman. Is the quote? Yeah, not and great. goes on to say like unaware of how hard it was for men to be around her and she didn't care yeah Fuck not you cool. yeah. Like, yeah that's not <laughs> not her responsibility um in the same story he says beauty needs no tongue women are to be seen and not heard like yeah. it's literally just saying that yeah there's there's a few with like object women yeah yeah um you had servants in bagambo well it's six cents a day for a man and four cents a day for a woman i guess why wouldn't i I don't know, because you don't want to own people, maybe? I just yeah. love that it didn't enter anyone's head. Well, you're like, well, if the slaves are that cheap, I can't afford to not have slaves. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, God, man. Yeah, and that's something the guy is making up to seem himself, seem cool, true. too. Like, he didn't even do it. It's yeah. like, it's cool how many slaves I own and how cheap they were. <laughs> and he's so, he, like, put in a wage gap, too, even yeah. for, like, he's made up of course, servants in another female country. female servants don't get as much. Ridiculous. And in that same <laughs> conversation, and this is bad on both of them, because this is a response. Like, the good yeah. couple says this, and he says it back. <laughs> the Oriental mind works in such devious ways. Exactly, Harry. You've caught the whole spirit of the Orient in that one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. Really weird. Um, and then a big St. Nick's, the kid who was fussy all day isn't fussy anymore. And this was a what for me, even though I know it happened at the time. He's like, hey, you're calmer. Daddy gave me half of a sleeping pill. <laughs> well, the people used to just pop a sleeping pill in their kid's mouth. Hey, shut up. <laughs> Take this. Oh, fuck. That was a Viagra. This is going to be bad. <laughs> um, oh, do you have? Do you have quote quotes? No, I think I think that's about it. Like okay. the other ones we've touched on, then so, especially Halloween. I can finish out the what's with my last one, the most offensive to me, to the English language itself. In the one with the bully, the boy who hated girls or whatever. Okay, yeah. The drum major, that's the bully. The drum major walked away, insolently spinning his baton. <laughs> I'm sorry, you cannot spin a baton in a threatening <laughs> fashion. Not possible. Have you ever seen someone spin a baton and thought... Oh, look at that punk. They're up to no good. That's so insolent. Look at the way he's twirling that glittery baton. He stands against everything we love. You can tell by the baton twirling. I'm so excited about this frustration. This this is the best. I did. I like laughed out loud and stopped. And I was like, what are you doing, Kurt? Insolently. Can't There's spin a, something insolently. <laughs> some baton listener is like, you totally can. Yeah. Michael's completely wrong. Spin insolently <laughs> yeah, with yeah. anger. Like, yeah, this is, it's like, now you're spinning home, in rage. Like, uh. yeah. <laughs> Never spin in rage. Yeah, spin from love. Don't spin from fear. Those are the what's. Let's get into another segment called Kurt Von Grades. We shall judge you for Judgment all time. time. <laughs> <laughs> This is where we grade Kurt relative to himself, and there's no existing Vonnegut grade for this collection. Uh, In talking to you about it, I've gotten more into it than I was. Um, I would still give it like a C. Yeah, I was was deeply not into it before, and now I'm pretty into it. 
It's like a it sketch is. show with hits and misses where the misses are really bad. And it makes you – you're like, well, if I averaged them out, it's not good. But the good ones are still very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And especially – like uh, we are kind of saying, hey, since these are old stories, there's some really retrograde stuff in these. Right. But also, we should—I feel like maybe we should give him some credit for he managed to get some really neat stuff into old stories. Like, yeah, <laughs> like Santa is a gangster who gets beaten his up, head and like Heinz Guderian blows his own head off. Yeah, and, like, it's crazy. Well, and the idea even of starting a story where the kids are scared of Santa and hate Santa, I was like, this is fresh. Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah here we go. Right. <laughs> Um, that one was really catchy. That one was just fun. Yeah. Yeah. N- Big Nick. Um, I would give it a B with the ideal table of contents and I hashed out my ideal table of contents. Oh. So out of 24 or 25 stories, I didn't count. It's something in there. I would keep nine <laughs> and it would, the book would be called The Powder Blue Dragon. I think that's your title story. Oh. And my table of contents goes, story one, to be or not to be, get them hooked. Yeah. Story two, no talent kid. By the way, I kept all the Hermholtzes. <laughs> <laughs> story three, the package. Story four, souvenir. Story five, ambitious sophomore, back with Helmholtz. The powder blue dragon. Present for big St. Nick. The boy who hated girls. Bagambo snuffbox, last track. Wow. Which is, I don't know if I can even say it's a C minus if I would only keep nine out of 24 stories. But if you just do those nine in that order, I say it's a solid B. <laughs> yeah, I think I would, I would probably cut The Boy Who Hated Girls, but everything else about that works great. I thought of that at the last second, actually on yeah. the drive here. And I thought two things. I didn't want to break up the set, like adopting yeah, right. one kitten. And I was like, but it's the Hemholtz set. <laughs> Gotta catch them all. And also... I didn't want to like besmirch Vonnegut's name by only having eight. Not that nine is much better, but I was like, <laughs> only eight of these were worth reading. But I really right, it's thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah. If you're like struggling to keep up and but you've liked the Vonnegut, I'd highly urge you to skip all the other ones and just read those ones that I just listed. Yeah. yeah. Did you did you put Thanosphere in there? I know I keep saying I like Thanosphere. No, I just I would swap that in. I just think Ghosts in Space is cheesy. Yeah. It struck me as dumb, but I'm not yeah, yeah. saying you're dumb. <laughs> no, and it, and it is like... There's sci-fi concepts I love that people are like, that's fucking dumb, Michael. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that one just didn't get me. The hook didn't get in my skin for whatever reason. Yeah, and it would have been one of the first couple stories he ever sold. So it's 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 a little that's hokey because he's yeah. like, like just starting out. But that doesn't mean it makes it good or yeah. anything. Yeah. I'm still all about the Ufio question. Oh, uh, so man. Good. Also very early. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, man, I, sh- I should have built a list, but it would be along those lines. I think I'd just put in Thanosphere, break up the Helmholtz set. What do you think about calling it the Powder Blue Dragon instead of Bagabo Snuffbox? I actually really box? like that. It's a, yeah. it's a stronger title. It's enticing. I like you can it. All, and uh, you can do a fun cover with a cool car on it or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it sounds great. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I've seen there. there's like various covers for this book, Bagambo Snuffbox, and they're usually pretty generic, but there's one with a tuba on it. Right. Because of all Just the Helmholtz there's stuff. several band stories. Yeah. That would be the other fun angle, I think, for a cover or a title or something is like band stuff. But yeah. Powder Blue Dragon's a really cool way to go. Yeah. 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 You could call it, yeah, like the, the George Helmholtz mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a really low stakes house. Something's wrong with a kid. He has no human understanding, but he has to figure it out anyway. Right. <laughs> But all that happens is they play Stars and Stripes forever at the end. Yeah. Right, they try to beat some other town in a competition. And they do, usually. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, speaking of tales, let's get into, uh, I think, our last segment called the Related Reading. Tail end of the uh, Related Reading. reading. Related ding, Reading. Ding, related Reading. Ding, related Reading. Ah. <laughs> and I, I think I just have two for this one. I have three songs. Oh, cool. Um, there were a lot of stories that touched upon classism, but a particular kind of dated classism, like the petty classism of being very wealthy, but but you're not the guy on the mansion at the top of the hill and it bothers you. Yeah. Um, and so I highly recommend the Simon and Garfunkel classic, Richard Corey, song based on a short story. You could read the story. Oh. Yeah, Richard Corey actually is a short story, but... Uh, I prefer the Simon and Garfunkel song telling of Richard Corey, the story of the richest man in town who nevertheless kills himself because he's so unhappy. Oh, it's by, it, the powerfully by told. Edwin Arlington Robinson. Is that right? Sure. I just rapidly Googled it. I like the Simon and Garfunkel version. Cool. Um, yeah, that's that. That sounds great. <laughs> um, yeah, I, well, because also in this book, uh, Vonnegut recommends reading a bit too, like Flannery O'Connor. You should check her out. And my my two are both other short story writing situations and pretty standard. Flannery is uh, a must read. She's yeah. amazing at short stories specifically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the other ones I'd recommend is uh, it's just called The Nick Adams Stories. And it is a collection that was curated after Hemingway's death of a lot of his most famous short stories because he would sort of like how Vonnegut keeps putting band director, George Helmholtz and stuff. Um, Hemingway would keep putting a guy named Nick Adams in a lot of his short stories and it's stitching together some of the most famous ones and also some material that he left out or didn't use or did put somewhere else. And it sort of gives it a through line in a very satisfyingly vague way. And you also sort of get to see his editorial decisions as it goes. And so it's really solid. Awesome. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. If you liked Powder Blue Dragon, especially, you might like these. Speaking of Powder Blue Dragon, see, it's, uh, I'm getting senioritis. We're in the home stretch of this podcast. So I'm like, I just want to <laughs> recommend this song to people. Uh, I, it just made me think of a song I love about a blue car by Fountains of Wayne. <laughs> Everyone knows Fountains of Wayne because of Stacy's Mom, which is yeah. their worst song. They have 30 songs that are great. <laughs> They're actually a very solid, oh. well-rounded band I highly recommend getting into cool. if you like power pop. Yeah. Um, but they have a particular song called 92 Subaru that's like, ooh, girl, I'm coming for you in my baby blue 92 Subaru. Like bragging <laughs> about the shittiest car ever, like a Beach Boys parody. And it's a lot really of, funny. A lot of ooh rhymes. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 92 Subaru. Oh, it's fun. Yeah, and you may or may not have heard a clip of it as well. Mm -hmm. We shall see. Podcast Law. Uh, only other recommendation, very typical of me, it's a collection called The Stories of Ray Bradbury. This was curated when Bradbury was alive, and it's 100 stories that he selected. I have that one. And Oh, great. There, yeah. And it says on the cover, like, selected by the author himself. Yeah, yeah. Once, yeah, he picked 100. Yeah, and you get to, this is sort of like when we did this segment for Timequake, I was sort of recommending people who I thought executed that kind of thing better and uh this one i'm sort of doing the same thing like you can see an author doing everything from sci-fi to midwestern life uh just very very effectively relatively early in the 20th century it's great i really think vonnegut struggles with short stories it's not yeah like he, he, it's he, insane to me that of the top 10 books that have made the most profound impact on me in my life probably five are kurt vonnegut books yeah but of the top 100 short stories I've ever read, I don't know if he has any on the list. He, he has a couple on the list. Yeah. But like 
Asimov is swamping you, dude. Bradbury's swamping <laughs> you. Like, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, can't all be good at everything, as George Helmholtz told Plummer. Yeah. Yeah. And the, yeah, there's like good stuff in there. He's up against everyone he's ever. Written. Of course. And I as, just think, as we always say, we're always speaking like relative to Vonnegut. Yes. Like it's, all, it's all great. But in the particular art form that is the short story, there are authors who devoted their career primarily to that form, Harlan yeah. Ellison. Yeah. And George Saunders. And a lot of them got better at it than Vonnegut is. That's all. Yeah. 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 But I'd put his novels against anyone's novels. And it is, it's also kind of fascinating. I, th- he, I think he genuinely like enjoys writing short stories from time to time, but it seems like he wrote a lot more of them than he otherwise would have for, for the financial money. incentive. It seems and, like yeah. his brain works in novels. That's what he was at home at, and that's why he mostly wrote that. So these yeah. short stories really are just like oddities of when he had to write short stories for money. <laughs> yeah, and you don't always get to see a great artist or one of your favorite artists do a bunch of art for money you know what i mean like like sure. oh this is what they would have put out if they had to you know so yeah. it's it's really interesting and he does good stuff with it yeah that's that, the bradbury i think you might have had one more song i do have one more yeah this is only so this is the most tenuously tied of all yeah i just yeah, yeah. really want to get this clip out in the world because i'm constantly pushing this is one of my favorite artists of all time anais mitchell um and one of my favorite songs of hers is called Shenandoah. So check out Shenandoah by Anais Mitchell, A-N-A-I-S. And uh, the only justification I have for bringing it is that Bernie O'Hare is called Bernie the Shenandoah ba- Blaster. <laughs> you drop the word Shenandoah, I know it's a place name, but nonetheless, I'm using that as a, a flimsy excuse to mention this cool song. Yeah. Yeah. She's great. She's great. And it's a song about... A Midwestern guy having a very unsatisfying love affair with a mysterious woman, which would fit into this book oh, fairly well. It really would. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. I just thought of the word Shenandoah, but <laughs> it's a really Midwestern story that could have gone in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, I did better than I thought I did. <laughs> yeah, or it could almost be like a Flannery O'Connor or Raymond Carver or something kind of story. Totally. Oh, do you know the song? Uh, no, just that description. Sure, yeah, yeah. Makes yeah. sense. I, I know some of her other stuff, but not that. It's real good. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, this is fun. And uh, I think that wraps up our episode on Bagambo Snuffbox. Bagambo. Um, the uh, programming note-wise, the next episode is about God Bless You, Dr. Kevorkian, which came out two months after this book came out. It was October of 1999. And it's a very different thing from anything we've read or discovered about Kurt so far. I haven't read it because I heard it was such an outlier, so I have no idea what I'm in for. Yeah. I I don't know. It, uh, Let's I can't find say, out together. Because it, it began its life as a WNYC radio show. And this is the transcript of that show? Yes, and also some But edited, stuff. or yeah. he added ligaments like he likes to do, sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's really fascinating. It's going to be a weird one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, and then we'll have more on how how future episodes will be from there in the future. Hallelujah! Yeah, and uh, uh, this was so fun. We uh, I I'm I, it feels nice liking this book more than I did walking it. It's a cool thing. That's happened to me almost every time. I think. Yeah. I can't think of one that you really like. Oh, I didn't think about that. It's ruined. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, uh, like maybe, just Bluebeard uh, for just me. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Bluebeard or just the fact that there's a better version where it's told from. Yeah, man. It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, Listen, we got to (laughs) go. Yeah. Thanks for listening to us. And if this isn't nice. What is? What is? What is?